Well, greetings and welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Taran Rama's Hard News on Friday night at BBS Radio Station 1. So we're grateful you join us here tonight. Let's make a take a few moments to get into that heart space so that we set the tone for the evening. So take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth, slowly and gently. Let go of that draw for the day. As you hear that Kimmy drum bringing in the the gathering, calling us all together. So as you go into that heart space, gather with your guides and guardians your spirit teams, your healing teams. This is a Kimi drum. Kimi is the sport for the day. This is a uh, Skywalker day, the crystal Skywalker. Ken number 233. <laughs> so, yeah, gather with those ancestors. Your spirit teams, whoever you like to journey with the Kimi drum with. And now there's a council fire here and it's in the center. So let us all come close. Make a virtual circle around that council fire. In that virtual way we know how to do. We're going to call in the seven sacred directions, galactic directions in the Mayan tradition. We'll do that with the Kimi drum. We welcome from the east. House of Light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see all things in clarity. And we greet from the north, the House of Night. May wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. We welcome from the West, the House of Transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We welcome from the South, the House of Eternal Sun. May right action bring us to harvest so that we might enjoy the fruit of the planetary being. 
greet from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather. May their blessings reach us now. Welcome from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. Today, 
This is the mantra. I dedicate in order to explore universalizing wakefulness. I seal the output of space with the crystal tone of cooperation. I am guided by the power of life force. This day is guided by the Red Serpent, and the occult guide today is the Yellow Star, Lamont, and our ally today is the World Bridger, so we just work with that Kimi drum making that happen, (laughs) and the challenge today is the Blue Knight, so working with our dream time with the Skywalker, that's that's a match made in heaven. A lot of good energy with um, today's date, and um, and that occult energy tonight is the uh, serpent. So we're working with the serpent. Um, no, the occult energy is the star, and it's the the guide tone, the tone god. I mean, he is the serpent, Chichang. So we've got lots of good energy going today, and. Uh, it's pretty exciting to to work with it. So it's a good day. I love those crystal days. It's all that complex stability going on. Lots of lots of uh, momentum with that. And then moving on to Saturday, it's a white cosmic wizard. So it's the 13th east and um, the wizard. And uh, we complete this wave of uh, the white wind. And with that 13 tone, that promise of change and that change in the wind that comes and, and finish up this this uh, wave of working with spirit. And then on Sunday, we start with a new wave, the wave of men, the eagle, the blue magnetic eagle is Sunday. And so with that eagle energy, the, <clears throat> the guidance is to that big picture and and uh, practice discernment. So as we see all those big details in that big picture, let's practice discernment with these 13 days coming up, starting on Sunday with the blue magnetic wizard, I mean eagle, excuse me, I wrote wizard down. Oh, yeah. Hang on a second. Oh, no. I just see what I did, and now I've messed up the whole thing for the whole way. I wrote down wizard twice. Because it's a warrior day, we're starting a new wave, and that's the wave of of the blue eagle. Right. That's the wizard, and that's the blue eagle. All right. I've not got it messed up. (laughs) We're in good shape. And that's good. So let's look at this eagle energy a little bit more. Because we're going to be working with it and, uh, after that magical day on Saturday with each. I didn't talk about that anymore either, so we can talk about that a little bit. Um, here we are. This um, tomorrow was. With each, we're working with a visionary aspect and um, finishing up this wave of the wind. 
So working with that visionary aspect, that promise of change, let's work with our illumination for others and work with our clarity of mind and purpose as we embrace these gifts of being that shaman and working with jaguar medicine. Uh, we work with our integrity in, in, in integrity and in accordance with divine will as we let go of any control or personal power issues with this energy. So that's tomorrow, and then on Monday when we start the wave of the eagle, this is also a visionary aspect. So <clears throat> that eagle energy is, is um, working with our commitment to service and moving consciousness to source. So we're re- reconnecting with all creation with this work, and as we embrace our independence and our belief in ourselves. Let us let go of any feelings of despair or any dissociation. So that's that eagle energy on Sunday. And then on Monday, it's the yellow lunar warrior. And so that warrior energy is a warrior aspect. It's about um, trusting in our journey and bringing awareness of right action. So we have these gifts of that communication with the divine, with this energy, and um, we have access to cosmic consciousness. So let's keep that awareness going as we let go of any limitations or any restrictions or any hesitation. So getting right into it on Monday. And then on Tuesday, it's the three Kaban, the red electric earth. And that electric tone is just that activity happening. It's that dynamism that happens with the three tones. And we have that with the earth. So earth is a healing aspect. So we're working with being that keeper of the earth and our awareness of earth energy. So tune in, listen to her, and embrace the gifts of having that access to planetary harmony as we are that balancing point. And we... And we just work with our intuition and follow our guidance. So let's let go of any separation, any failure to read the signs, or any dissociation as we embrace these energies on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, the four etnons, which is the white self-existing mirror. It's another warrior aspect. So we're working on groundedness and that wise use of honesty and working on Self-understanding, that's not what's so good at showing us who we are. <laughs> so we embrace these gifts of scrying the unseen and, and that fluidity and that persistence in the mirror. So let go of any illusions of separateness as we do this work. Let go of any fear, any um, abandonment issues or any illusions as we embrace these energies on Wednesday and then on Thursday. The five co-op, and that's the storm. So it's the blue overtone storm. That five tone. That's putting that activity into that pyramid. It's like the top of the pyramid. So things are really moving with the five tone, and we're working with co-op, which is another visionary act uh, aspect. So its work is creating transformation for others so we're lighting clear thought and we're um being that activator being that lightning so embrace these gifts of that 
possibility of freedom and that power of catalyzing. Let go of any addiction to crisis or despair. Let go of fear. It doesn't have, there's no room for that <laughs> or any illusion of separateness. And then, then moving on to Friday, it's the yellow rhythmic. Um, so it's the sixth of how. And that completes the union that we're in. So we're moving right along to the last union on this last day on Friday. It's a healing aspect, and it's about rising to Christ consciousness. It's about striving towards wholeness. And it's about transmitting energy to others. So let's embrace these gifts of that possibility, thinking that unconditional love and the God self. Let go of any limitation, let go of any separation, and embrace these energies with that sixth tone, the rhythmic tone, which is, we're really rolling when it gets to six, so <laughs> we're putting our intentions into actions and doing it. So there you go. That's, we'll talk about that some more next Friday when we come back. And I want to change my hat, as we are a listener supported radio program, I'd like to do a little bit of the housekeeping right now as far as what we need. And um, so I redid the math on what we needed for last week. That We still need to pay $170 for the last week in December. And then this week we need $300. So we need $470 altogether to get even for this week and, and, and finish up last week. At $170, and we did talk about that differently, but I redid the math, and that's how it works out. So here's how we make a contribution to our account at BBS Radio. Um, You need to go to one of our programs on BBS Radio, and on Thursdays and Fridays, we are on BBS Radio 1. So go to bbsradio.com, click on Radio Station 1. You're looking for the menu on Radio Station 1. So you want to find on Thursday at 6 o'clock hour is a night at the round table with the panel. And if you missed last night, you need to watch, listen to the rerun because it was really good and it was so special. So anyway, here's how we uh, do that. As you click on that icon there, it'll take you directly to our account where you can make a contribution in any amount. The same is true with this program, The Hard News, on Friday nights with Taran Rama on Radio Station 1, 6 o'clock hour Pacific time. And click on that icon, and that'll take you to our account. And then we have a program on Saturdays at 1.30 hour on Radio Station 2. And um, so that's the hard news. No, it's the true history history of Nisera and our galactic origins with Taran Rama. So um, those are the three programs. You can click on the icon there and make that donation. In any case, we're grateful for you taking that action. We need $300 each week to cover our expenses, and we're behind 170 from last year. So let's get caught up 170 from last year and get stay caught up with the 300 coming in for this week as well. So. Thank you for taking that action. We are so grateful for your participation, and we're grateful for all the ways you show up in your lives. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs, and they have two emergencies this week. 
which means we really need the money to come in immediately. They uh, need printer cartridges, and that's going to cost $245. And that they can get, as soon as the money comes in, they can go get those. And they also need to buy the motor mounts for their car, and and the car's really not wanting to wait any longer, and this is not safe. And so it just totally has to happen right away. If we can get that, those funds in by Monday where Rama can just get that taken care of, it would just be awesome. So let's see what we can do. Here's how we make a donation to Tara and Rama. You want to access Rama's PayPal account, and you do that two ways. One is by going to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And as you click on the menu grid, a menu will drop down, and near the bottom of that list is a donate button or link to Wellness PayPal account. And you can make a donation there as you click on that, follow that in the Rainbow Roundtable account. And that donation will be wonderful. <laughs> you just use your bank card, pretty easy to do. The other way to access the account with PayPal is using Rama's PayPal email address in the gifting line. So you go to paypal.com and in the gifting line you put in Rama's email and that um, email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N 9999 at hotmail.com and that'll take you right to his account that way and that that's the that's how you access the friends option. So you just eliminate the commercial charges. Either way is perfect. We are so grateful for your contributions. Thank you so much uh, for participating in this way and and, and uh, honoring all that Tyra and Rama do in this way as well. And, and honoring ourselves as we gather each way, <laughs> just this way each week. So we're grateful for all, all that you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. As you are sending something, please let Rama know that email address and let him know that you sent something and when you sent it is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 99939 at comcast.net. And then as you need it, the mailing address is as follows, Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M, D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 86567. There you go. And so thank you. I might have just gotten the zip code wrong. That zip code's wrong. You're going to have to tell me. And I would like to pass this talking stick. And this is Little Christmas, so it's got all the little lights on it and all the little fairies are on it. And all the little bitty Christmas trees are stuck all over it. And it looks festive and fun. And there's all kinds of... um, yeah, <laughs> Quetzalcoatl is there, and the 
the sword of truth is there. Excalibur is there. I mean, truth and justice are on its way. That's all I want for Christmas. So, <laughs> so greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Greetings. Greetings. All right, 867567. Eight, and happy little Christmas, everyone. Yes, happy Christmas. In the news, uh, I was watching RT, and then I watched the regular news, and they lied just the opposite on the regular news. Like, like that's nothing new. But they made it very clear that uh, Russia declared a ceasefire, a 36-hour ceasefire. And it ends in our time zone, or in their time zone, I'm sorry, at uh, midnight tomorrow night. And I'm not remembering exactly the moment it began. I'm just saying the Western media, along with Mr. Zelensky, said nothing of the sort. He said, it's probably a trick, so we're going to keep bombing the heaven out of our own people. And... Uh, Every day I listen to the news, they say Russia's doing the bombing, and every day I listen to RT, and it's, it's just the opposite. And today I was, oh, I was listening to this report, and this older gentleman, he just said that last week uh, they bombed his aunt and killed her in the street. He went across the street. He dug her a place to bury her body and did a sacred ceremony, and that was that. that. And then yesterday, I mean, the neighbors are getting killed, and it's in the Donetsk region, and they're Russians. They speak Russian, they love the Russian people, and they're Russians. And that's also right at the border between Russia and Ukraine. So there's political uh, uh, goings after there. And I was just remembering a, a good good heart space, the Amal and the night visitors. And my oldest son, Christopher, now the same, actually six months older than Don and Doug. <laughs> His birthday's on June 28th. And he turned 54, and happy birthday again, Don and Doug. And that also means it's a completion year. Because nine is completion of all kinds of cycles. And I mean, from going into many incarnations past, present, and future. I mean, my mom has got a, 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 a wonderful friend uh, who's 175,000 years in the future come back to this present time. 
he doesn't mean maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then uh, on another level on the Earth's plane, 20,000 years uh, in the body, and again, Putin, uh, uh, let's see, this is 2023, 20, 33, and uh, 33 from uh, 7 is uh, 3 from 7 is 4. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, 14, 15, I'm not sure exactly, but it's somewhere 15, 20 years from now. He will be exactly 500 years in that body. These are not um, unlikely stories, and there's more and more messages coming out of these galactic beings starting to show themselves now. And coming from every time-space continuum that we do know of, and then many we don't remember Rama telling the story about Alcyon what's the name of the planet Alcyon's from Um, where they bounce they bounce on the magnetic wave P Procyon Procyon. yes those beings are all ascended and they bounce around and they uh, send conscious good vibrations to, in particular, focus on the ascension of the 33rd planet, Mother Gaia, right now. And this is going on in 27 universes at Supergalactic Center as well. And there's every kind of... Don was just saying how busy it is and how many people are calling, and that's going, like, off the wall with all the things and the questions to answer. That's going on at the galactic level, too, right, Ron? Yes, there were two X-class solar flares today, and the energies are so high I don't even have words. And it's a wolf moon in cancer, full moon, super moon. Yeah, um... Let's uh, really quickly read that. There's a little section here uh, in uh, Rum and the Plant. Um, let's see. All right. I'm just going to repeat it. I think we've read it before. Where is that thing? Okay. Um January opens the gateways to wondrous new beginnings. January, named after the Roman god Janus, known as the initiator of human life, transformations between stages of life, and shifts between one historical era to another. 2023, the year of the Phoenix Rising. That is so powerful. And there's five steps to that experience. We've talked about this a long time ago, but I'll have to say it really quick. You start with the, uh, uh, it's actually a scorpionic energy, but you start with the scorpion, and you know that the scorpion, as it's in danger or it's been hurt, it will take itself out by biting itself with its own poison. It will sting itself, I mean, with its tail. That's what it will do. 
had a number of stories to tell about meeting them all along the way. Uh, none of us. Uh, the next step, the next step is the swan, right, Rama? And that brings that fairy tale story, the ugly duckling, who one day looked in the water and saw a reflection and said, was that me? Yeah, that's you. And that's really what we're doing now, too. We're looking at ourselves in the cosmic mirror and saying, oh, we're transforming into that beautiful swan. And then there is, what's next? The dove. Yes, the dove. On the wings of doves. I remember the Vatican letting doves go fly around after they figured out who's going to be the next poop. But that gets transformed, too. We're not doing killing for profit anymore, which is what the poop is doing and what all the rest of the empire's arrogance is deciding who's who in the zoo to do to do it, too. And uh, then there's the um, eagle. And again, it comes to the point, you know, of the rabbit. There's a relationship between the eagle and the rabbit because the rabbit can have an, I mean, the eagle can have the rabbit for dinner. Yet we can be all these things and the rabbit symbolizes fear. So we have our own fear for dinner, let's say, put it just that way transmuting it by taking it into our cosmic uh, eagle eye and, and discerning that that's uh, the wrong path to take ourselves down. Fearlessness. And uh, believe in the magic because you are always able to go beyond what you think. And then, so that's one, two, three... Of Eagle Four, the fifth one is the Phoenix rising. Out of the ashes rises an ascended being. You might say, out of the gold dust rises the ascended being, huh, Rama? Yeah. There is gold dust in everything. There is monoatomic gold in everything. We had the honor of watching that happen, though. Remember, Ram? Yeah. Dr. Hudson, David Hudson. Mm -hmm. He did it right in front of us. Uh, well, we watched it. I watched it on his film, right? That's right. Yeah. But he was there for about eight hours. And then we went out to eat with him with a whole bunch of people. But yeah, he, the, the gold, which is AU2, up to 3,000 degrees, and it disappears. That's how you know you got there. <laughs> And then you cool it down, and and when it comes back, it's AU1. That's monoatomic gold. And he created a product uh, out of that, and it really worked. We had had that product, and it really worked. And I don't remember the name of it anymore, but all kinds of things are happening now. So back to this. The year of the phoenix rising from the ashes is going to be a year of all the above, just like we were talking. It is said that Janus was present at the beginning of the world 
as is known as the God of Gates, having been to the mystical Janice Stone on Boa Island in Northern Ireland. The spirit of Janice is even more profound for me as I prepare to honor the old ways, honor my ancestors, the Tuatha de Danon. Here comes those magic little Irish people. Mm. (laughs) Uh, In October, our tribe wove a web of prayer and vision for a kinder, gentler world at the stone as each had a special moment, a place to review our past through the eyes of the heart and to see into the future and the wild unknown, a place to create a new reality by being fully present in the immediate now reality. Um, And that's pretty simple. That's the word on that. And I'll read this, what Rama had me write. I received a call from Lady Natasha at 12.21 p.m. She said to me, Lord Rama, I have a friend with me. Her name is Olga. She is a Siberian shaman, Jedi master, who follows in the footsteps of the ancient ones of Siberia and Mongolia. Caroline Rama and Tara went to a movie how many years ago now at Christmas time and it was about this uh, land where they live in huge teepee, igloo, teepees yurts yurts right that they make themselves and they have little ponies this was in Siberia and um, and that my Mongolia superior board, Siberia area and they would come and find with their ponies up on the mountain they'd find eagle nests and they would take one and they would do some communing telepathically to the one that wanted to be with them and this young 10 year old girl spent years with this every day taking it on and learning the responsibility and being with that eagle and teaching that eagle how to fly in a manner in which the eagle would come back and uh, and then teaching the eagle to do specific things and they have a hundreds of years old practice where the elders uh, judge everything that they do and they go up on the top of this cliff and they have the eagle in their own communication way fly all the way down the cliff, down to the soar, down to the land and hover over the land and pick up that fox and have it for dinner. (laughs) Anyway, it, it was a training for those years and it's always the daughter and the father during those ages, 12, 10, 11, 12, 13 um, so the ways of 
all of these um, native people with the land that they come from is going to be enhanced. We're going to learn a lot this yeah. year. Uh, so uh, she can open portals and call in. She had, let's see, Olga. Olga, um, she follows in the footsteps of the ancient ones of Siberia and Mongolia. Mongolia. She has a herd of sheep that she cares for in order to harvest their wool and make beautiful things out of. She can open portals and call in the ships with crystals like you do, Lord Rama. Uh, Lady Natasha continued, Lord Rama, this is the translation of Olga's good words for the wolf full moon. Greetings. With this wolf full moon in Cancer, we are calling in all the beings, known and unknown, who serve alongside Lord Sanat Kumara and Lord Michael on this Orthodox Christmas night. Um, you finish it because I didn't get it finished written down. You got to finish it, Rama. Okay. And she spoke about the energies right now that are coming in with the solar flares and the upcoming solar transfiguration that all the animals are saying now is the time to come together and listen to the stillness, the oneness that is so pervasive across the planet and leave the Maya, the illusion alone. Essentially, that's the message to stay in this timeless oneness right now with this little Christmas. <laughs> Also, I'm remembering, I mean, in Amal and the night visitor, visitors, Amal was a young crippled boy, and he lived with his mom. And the three wise men stayed with them, and they took everything care of. And they served them with what little they had. They served them like kings. Yes. Who they were. And it was... A beautiful time to, um, I think Michael was about 10. I mean, mean Christopher, sorry. And the beautiful voice and all the rest of the people in the play were all opera singers. So Micah got to sing with all opera singers and act as well at that age. And arts, emphasis on the arts, music, dance, song, all the way through this year in a, in a, um, a deeply and expansive, widening way. So let's get busy. Right, Emma? Yes. Anything else you want to say right now? Just that um, stay in... The high vibes, and we got to go to the conference call. We do. I was going to say one more thing that today 
they played 147 rings of the bell. Uh, uh, right, I can't remember the name of this the place. I mean the the church. I think it was a church that, or maybe it was right there in the Capitol. But they were there at the Capitol, and then there were these young people and some and the the direct families of the six people who died on um and they came up there and uh we'll play that i'm not sure if it's going to happen today but we'll see in the time period but uh let's just really put a good vibration towards that uh and as you got a candle light a candle light one candle that song (laughs) okay so we'll continue right now as Rama gives us where to call. To the conference 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Namaste, everybody. See you on the conference. And send good vibrations to those perpetrators that this can be done in a good way. The accountability part, because this whole year is about that, too. Accountability. All right. See you on the conference. Namaste.
gracious heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. We have God victoriously birthed the new year 2023. The myriad life transforming activities of light that were co-created in 2022 through the unified efforts of lightworkers around the world and the beings of light in the heavenly realms have set the stage for you and me and the rest of awakening humanity to successfully co-create the next phase of Mother Earth's ascension process. We are being told from on high that until this moment, the magnitude of what this means has been beyond the comprehension of our finite minds. Our Mother God, the Divine Feminine, has now been fully balanced with the Divine Masculine in every person's heart flame. The Company of Heaven is revealing that this event has provided the opportunity for each and every one of us to tangibly experience what it really means to seek ye first the kingdom of heaven within and all else will be revealed unto you. That was almost impossible to attain after our fall from grace and the withdrawal of our mother God's love. Now, everything has changed. The full divine potential of our balanced, immortal, victorious, threefold flame is now pulsating in our heart, awaiting our conscious and deliberate arrival. All is in readiness, and our arrival into the sacred space of the most high living God within our heart flame is being joyously anticipated by our I am presence. With the birth of the new decade 2020 to 2030, our Father Mother God granted a cosmic dispensation to the beings of light from the realms of a living truth. This dispensation is allowing these selfless messengers of God to collaborate in new ways with the light work of awakening humanity. Until now, this level of cooperation has not been possible in any system of worlds. As we contemplate the awesome events that have been co-created month after month since the cosmic dispensation in 2020, this greatly intensified collaboration will be confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt. The shifts of energy, vibration, and consciousness that have taken place over the last three years and the acceleration of the divine alchemy that is transfiguring our carbon-based cells into fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light cells have cleared the way for the next step of our journey into the light. Because of our progress in 2022, the Company of Heaven now has the ability to help our I Am Presence activate the latent abilities 
that are encoded within our 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. This will be accomplished step by step through the unified efforts of heaven and earth as we progress through 2023. To begin this process, the company of heaven will join us today for the following activity of light. If you have the heart call to participate on behalf of humanity, the elemental kingdom and mother earth, please join with me now. I am breathing in deeply and going within to the divinity of my perfectly balanced, immortal, victorious, threefold flame. I am my I am presence and I am one with God. I am also one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth. Collectively, humanity's I am presences now merge into one luminous being of light that is cradling Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her within the divinity of our unified heart flames. Humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth are now breathing in unison with me as one elevated holy breath. I now breathe the perfectly balanced masculine and feminine holy breath of God into the deepest recesses of my heart flame. On this holy breath, I ascend in consciousness into the full embrace of my mother, God. Instantly, I am enveloped in my mother, God's comprehensive divine love. I hear the melodious tones and I absorb the celestial fragrance of her love. Suddenly, I feel myself soaring into higher and higher frequencies of her love than I have ever known. I feel myself penetrating into the core of purity within the flame of my Mother God's comprehensive divine love and the splendor of this sacred fire envelops my being. I am now experiencing a love, a oneness, and a reverence for all life beyond anything I have ever even contemplated. Divine wisdom is awakening within me, and in a flash of enlightenment, I know and fully understand that my I am presence is volunteering to be an instrument of God that will demonstrate comprehensive divine love to the mass consciousness of humanity. This realization is being encoded in my conscious mind. I now know that this sacred knowledge will be tangibly available to me whenever I need to recall it in my service to humanity and all life.
in deep humility and gratitude. I accept the opportunities that are being presented to me to infuse humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth with the sacred knowledge of my Mother God's love. Through my I Am Presence, I now consecrate my life force and my holy breath to be the open door through which the full spectrum of the flame of comprehensive divine love will now flow to bless all life on earth. For a sublime moment, I assimilate this experience as I breathe my perfectly balanced, elevated, holy breath in and out slowly. With each in-breath, I ascend higher and higher into the multifaceted celestial frequencies of my Mother God's love. And with every out-breath, I breathe this sacred fire forth to consecrate all life evolving on earth. As every son and daughter of God evolving on earth is consecrated with the full potential of our Mother God's flame of comprehensive divine love, their I Am Presence is activating specific genetic coatings within the structures of their 12 fifth dimensional crystalline solar strands of DNA. These coatings contain the immaculate concept, the divine blueprint for each person's divine plan, as well as their latent abilities, which are awaiting activation during this cosmic moment. This activity of light is empowering every man, woman, and child on earth to fulfill his or her divine purpose and reason for being. Through this activation, the mind and emotions of every person are being purified and realigned with the harmony of their true being in preparation for the fulfillment of their divine plans in 2023. This purification is paving the way for the conscious mind and the superconscious mind within each individual to merge and become one. In this state of at-one-ment, each person's I am presence comes to the forefront and takes dominion of their life, their body, their mind, and their soul. Each of these attributes are quickened and lifted into a state of enlightenment that clears the way for the fulfillment of the divine plan in 2023 and the manifestation 
of the new earth. And so it is. Dear one, contemplate these words and know that your time is at hand. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. We love you deeply. We are in love with you. How many times have I said that? The answer is countless. That the core of all of the channeling, regardless of the minutia I've given you, about the things to come, perhaps, or what it might look like, perhaps, or the differences you would feel, perhaps. All that minutia. Will simply by, by its very nature be shoved aside the core of this message. And the one you just heard. Is pure love. There is nothing like the love of God. That creative source energy goes beyond the emotion that you call love. For it's a combination of profound compassion and the integrity and the spirit of a very caring, very caring creative source. An unconditional love is truly just that, who looks upon you, and there is no judgment. That's unconditional, isn't it? You cannot say in one breath, I have unconditional love by God, and then in another say, but there's judgment as well. There is none. You have a discussion, and you've had many, but this one today, a little different about channeling in general. So let's discuss that. Perhaps in a way we have not done before. It's interesting, is it not, when you hear the channeling of the day. A moment ago, In comes the profundity of Yeshua. And you understand and relate because you know this was a master on this planet. You know so much about this. You may relate far more with that entity and that channeling than anything else. Because there was a human person involved. When Adirondack comes in, when Cryon comes in, 
there is a tendency for you to say, and who are you? And so I want to talk about that. We are all the same. All on the council. Cryon, Yeshua, in one aspect. We all are on the other side of the veil at this moment, bathed in the light of the Creator and coming to you in the purest love imaginable. That's where we emanated from. And it's so interesting what you do with your mind and how you separate that which is linear from that which is not. God is not linear. God is multidimensional. So are you, dear ones, except the linear part of you is all that you know and all that you have known. And as this thing called humanity starts to grow into a multidimensional perspective, it's almost like lights are going to go on on this planet so that the rest of the galaxy says, look what's going on. They're beginning to get it. Maybe it's even safe to visit. Because <laughs> up to now, it hasn't been safe. Did you ever think of that? There is a sense of barbarianism to a linear society that still kills itself on a regular basis. Do you understand? You wonder why those from perhaps the rest of the galaxy have hung back a bit <laughs> until you grow up. Well, you're growing up. This precession of the equinoxes was an astronomy phenomenon but an esoteric gold mine. You passed that marker. You weren't planning on passing that. Did you know that? There was so much against you moving past that, but you did. You should know that there were forces afoot that would hold you back, hoping you wouldn't pass it. And there was also tremendous light pushing, knowing that you would. But with free choice, you did. Now that is a book to be written. And it will be someday. An esoteric history of how you passed 2000 to 2012. That is the hero's story, dear ones, that my partner gave you to begin this series yesterday. Every single human being on the planet sits in a place that is heroic and you don't even know it. Some are bemoaning the state of the planet and are, are saying how awful things are. Don't even understand anything about that linear and multidimensional quotient between that which was and that which is and that which will be. You are beginning a journey of multidimensional consciousness and thinking. And when you are at a certain stage, dear ones, everything changes. 
What's that got to do with channeling? Well, I'll tell you. You cannot conceive of what is going on right now in this channeling, in this message, as long as you sit there in a linear consciousness, because you're always going to ask this for 30 years. The biggest question of Kryon is, who are you? I want to talk to the tree hugger who is here. Do you go into that that field of Gaia and you feel the earth speaking to you and you feel the love surging through your body and nature is greeting you and you listen to the birds and you you can you can smell that purity of the oxygen that is pouring into your lungs and all of that love and do you stop for a minute and demand and who are you? You don't. There is no who involved with nature because nature is a multi-sourced who if you want to say that it's all together there are so many elements and whether those elementals will show themselves to you and congratulate you and love you it doesn't matter you feel them all if you're in touch with Gaia you are a multi-dimensional human being you have to be But most of you are not. And so you don't understand the circle of reality and the circle of time. Time marches on, they say, to a linear human being. How many times have you heard, well, time marches in a circle? No, you don't necessarily hear that, do you? You have one idea. And that is there is forward and backward and now, and that's it. That is linear. That's simple. And that's not the way of it. The voice you hear now is the result of a beautiful meld between that which is the multidimensional consciousness of what you call the soul, a higher self of an individual, and that which is the multidimensional love of God on the other side of the veil. That's who is speaking. The who is not a who, it's an entourage that changes moment by moment. One of the reasons that the woman next to me can channel the council is for this explanation to you. They all have the same message. Did you notice? And whether it's serious or humorous or whether it has an accent or doesn't, the message is the same. It is a multi-dimensional message of love. And sometimes that message knocks on a door that is so linear that all you can do is say, who is there? Some will ask, well, what's the difference between you, Cryon, whoever you are, and all the other religions on the planet? And that tells me one thing. You have no idea who is talking. There's that comparison with rules and minutia and linear steps and ideas that have nothing to do with the glory and the beauty of a multidimensional caring God without judgment. When you start to open 
your consciousness to multidimensional thinking, it bursts everything wide open. Some get sick because the linearity of your mind has to reboot. Some call that the dark night of the soul, not understanding that that what you call reboot gets you into a place you've never been before. A thinking process that is so expanded and you come out of that smiling. And everywhere you look, you see that which you never saw before. You see love in everyone, everyone, it doesn't matter who it is. You'll see the creator in everyone because you realize everybody has a soul. And then you chuckle and laugh because you see that soul is also multiple. It is not singular. Even though you think it is, it isn't. We say this so often to you. You think you have a higher self? So many say, well, yes, we do. You think you have a lower self? Well, that probably is me without the higher self. That's fine. Okay, now you got two. How many do you need for a group? <laughs> and then there's this blank stare. You mean my soul's a group? Yes, it is. You mean it's not me? Yes, it is. How can it be me and a group? Yes. <laughs> that is the difference between linear thinking and multidimensional thinking. You don't understand it because you're not built to understand it. And so what is the answer to all of this? We have given that to you as well. In the interim, before there's an evolutionary process where so many of you are starting to understand the multiplicity of your own selves, there is an interim. And if you can do it, it's what we teach, it's what we all teach, no matter who is speaking. Or should it be whom? <laughs> Here's the answer it always was. Be still. Take a breath. Sit down and be loved. Be still. Take a breath. Sit down and be loved. If you'll allow that, all of the minutia of am I doing it right, wrong, which hand, what not, all goes away. Erase, erase, erase. And in the process, all of the new things that you may need to know about you, your life, the new energy, why you're here, the plan starts to implement itself little by little into your consciousness because you sat on, took a breath, and weren't afraid to be loved. Healer, you listening? That's going to increase your healing ability tenfold. Did you know that? You get out of the, the hows, the ways, all of the little minutiae that you go through, and just sit down and be loved. And we've said this before. Watch what happens to your process. There's someone in here who wants to write a book and having problems. You know what the problems are? You. I want you to sit down and take a deep breath. And don't decide anything about the book. Zero. And let it pour in. You won't be able to write fast enough. That's how it's done. That's the difference between linear thinking and multidimensional thinking. Some of you still don't understand, even as I speak these words to you, what truly this means. So I'll say this again. What was the tree hugger experiencing? He or she was experiencing love. 
the love of Gaia, the love of God, the creator, unconditional, pure, and it felt so good. So for now, experience this and only this without the questions and check yourself for validation as you go. Just as everything has been told to you today, if you question, ask for validation for you and you'll get it because you've opened the door a crack to understand yourself. And in the process, there is an evolutionary aspect that pushes you into a multi-dimensional space that to some is confusing and others you'll smile and say, I know what's happening. I know what's happening. I know what's happening. And that's the difference between those who say they're a light worker and will walk around always puzzled to someone who will say they're a light worker and walks around with joy, non-questions and light. Why do you have to understand everything that is to be loved? You answer me that. Mm. I already told you because I'm linear, you'll say. Because I'm a product of the old energy, you'll say. And that's the way you're supposed to be, you'll say. This is a new time. You have the aspects of the potential of masters. You all do. When this world starts to think in a multidimensional way, I'll say it again. It's almost like searchlights are coming from your planet to the rest of the galaxy. And they will look at you and say, I think they're almost ready. But as long as you remain linear, it's the age of the barbarian. And you know I'm right. Because that's your history. And that's about to change. I speak these things in truth. Some of you understand, some of you do not. But it comes from a place of love. That's who is speaking. That entourage which represents spirit, God, creative source all together, pouring through this human being with a pure thread of gold, with a truth that cannot be denied. You are loved and known by God. Period. Do whatever you do with free choice to implement that now. I am crying, lover of humanity. And there's no who talking to you here. And so it is. Greetings, dear ones. I'm crying of magnetic service. Sometimes the channelings come with facts and figures, metaphors, stories. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come with love, compassion, and exposure. This is one of those. 
this is a continuation, dear ones, of the channeling given this morning. And if some of you are listening to this who are not here and have discovered this channeling, and you can't find the one of this morning, you're looking in the wrong place. They go together, and we're going to continue the channeling. And we're going to talk just, just briefly about consciousness and the bubble. The bubble, as described this morning, is that which has evolved from the box of belief and becomes a bubble of belief. It becomes a membrane that things can pass through. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. There are ones, this day has been an exposure of logic. Logic that even a scientist in the room would have to agree is there to some degree that would beg questions about what consciousness might really be. The scientists have shown that consciousness is energy. It's energy on a playing field of physics because it actually will affect the magnetic grid of the planet and also that which is random. And these are provable things. And yet you still don't really know what it is. What if consciousness is something that comes from a place it isn't actually a place at all. It's a dimension that is so unusual and so much belonging to a human that, that you don't even recognize. Do animals have consciousness? The answer is yes, but it's not yours. Do animals have love? Yes. They're attracted to you, you know. They're attracted to your love. Animals that love see you and they see the master of love in you if you've ever noticed no animal decides to be the master of love with other animals they're loving it they're all about you because they see in you that which is a consciousness that comes from the stars angelic you might say that is unique to the human being Angelic consciousness is consciousness which has a multidimensional aspect that comes from beyond. That's not something that you're going to be able to analyze, dear ones. When you start defining it, it will then defy any kind of examination because it keeps going. How far can consciousness go in evolution? You have just begun to have a consciousness that is going to pick up information in your past Akash, apply it to your current life, and give you wisdom. Generation after generation after generation, and you will find humanity at peace. Then you're going to find humanity starting to evolve in other ways. That won't make any sense right now because those ways don't even exist. But eventually, that consciousness which we have shown you is physics may actually be able to control the things around you.
Your consciousness will have an effect on the planet. Your consciousness might have an effect on physics itself. Your consciousness may actually be able to put you in a body without cells. This room is filled with those without cells. You ever wonder why the indigenous turn to their ancestors so often? Because they can see them. They can smell them. Because it's energy that is revisited where they are. And it's palpable. And in this room, it's filled with energies that are consciousness that have passed. Consciousness of those you've loved and lost that are here. Why would they be here? What would be the reason that they'd even come to this kind of a place where you sit for a meeting? And I'll tell you, it has to do with the bubble. Dear ones, this morning, we stopped the channel when the bubble occurred that replaced the wall of belief. The bubble becomes an allowance. It actually would have a consciousness, that bubble. If you could, if you could ask it, dear bubble, who are you and what are you? It would say, I am a sponge. And I am searching for truth in this bubble. And I'm going to allow my truth to alter itself. My belief to become something else. As through the bubble comes things that I didn't expect. And what is that that's going to come through the bubble? What if right now coming through your wall or your box or your bubble is going to be the energies of the past of the ancestors of earth itself trying to get through to say to you, listen up, listen up, listen up. Something is happening on this planet. You're going to need us. Something is happening on this planet where you can't be alone anymore, where you're going to have to have the wisdom of mom and dad and brothers and sisters and all of those in your bubble. Now, you're going to have to have the consciousness of the Gaia, love, Pachamama, that which is earth coming into your bubble in a way that makes you one with everything. One. So as you walk the planet, you feel them all. That's a lot different than a wall of belief, isn't it? But it still will define you, dear ones, because that bubble that will then accept the love of the earth, of your higher self, of your ancestors, of your relatives, which still exist, all of that will create a human being that is balanced, not afraid. There's nothing that can pierce that, dear ones. There is no amount of darkness that will ever get through that. Have you heard of the Merkabah? This is something which is eight meters wide that surrounds you, which is the vehicle of spirituality that you'll walk around in. 
It's not your bubble. That's your consciousness, your Merkaba. That's your spiritual vehicle. That's what the higher self lives within. That's the pattern of your DNA. And I'll tell you, it's beginning to generate light like it never has before. There are those who say, crying, I'm afraid of dark things. That's an old bias. How can you be afraid when you hold a torch? Where there's light, there cannot be darkness. And every single one of you have a Merkaba that is starting to glow with a light that chases away darkness. Chases away darkness. And where you walk, darkness will recede. That's the new human. Because you have a bubble that is ready to receive things you don't expect. It's not set in its way. The bubble of belief has a has a membrane that lets things pass through it that that are from a, an area that you need more love, more compassion, more wisdom, more understanding. That's what the bubble creates. Allowance of change. And dear ones, I'll tell you something. The old soul is really ready for this. Some of you who sit in the chairs right now, you're really ready for this. That's why perhaps you came. Startling esoterics are beginning to shift this, this humanity that you live in. And it's why you sit in the chair so you can hear this. There's a tendency of the linear hum, human being to get out of the chair at the end of this meeting and say, well, that was a lovely meeting. And that's it. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of being loved too much? What are you afraid of? That you would not be able to accept what I'm telling you. That those you've loved and lost are here. Are you afraid of that? That there's so much love for you of, of the universe that with free choice, it's, it's got his hand out saying, there's more here, you know. <laughs> every issue in every chair in this room is solvable, every issue. No matter what you've been told, no matter what you think, dear ones, there is so much here for you. That's with that acceptance bubble that walks out of this room and says, this or something better, bring it on. Because I am done with building walls. I want a bubble where my belief can be enhanced by things that are new and it won't hurt. And I don't have to offend my friends because I receive more love. I don't have to proselytize. I don't have to evangelize. All I have to do is love and walk from place to place in a balanced way. And the children will see it and the animals will see it and those around you will see it. Even the plants will know. That's a fact. That's the profundity of what is ahead. That's why you're here. It's not a long message. But it's one I want you to hear. Perhaps you've just tuned into this. You should hear it again. Because it tells you you are magnificent. All of you. Born that way with free choice to enhance it 
instead of go into a shell that is filled with fear and darkness as some of you have. It's time to break out of it. This is a good time where there is coherence right now in this room. There are those who will help if you allow it. And you don't even have to meet them. You help each other simply by sitting in each other's Merkaba, by a coherence that's generated in this place that goes beyond what you ever think would be. Hard to believe, is it not? That there are others in this galaxy know what you're thinking right now, who are watching this planet, watching coherence, having celebrations because you broke out of the norm and you've made it past 2012. That is the truth that someday will be validated. And you'll be here, dear ones, all of you. You may look a little different, but you'll be here. Beautiful, the system that exists, beautiful, filled with purpose and love, compassion, logic, reason, just for you. This is the teaching of crying. It always will be. Blessed is the human who hears this, cognizes it, understands it, and leaves differently than they came. And so it is. to mother and and we are to do it as servants of peace we are all servants of peace
experience mother in the life of the most radiant one in the office of Christ and only in the office of Christ. We invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and the Violet Flame. We ask at this time to hear the sound of one hand clapping, the sound of silence, the sound of music of the spheres, all in one. And that's Happy New Year. <laughs> greetings, Mother. Greetings, greetings, greetings. Greetings, children of Ra. Indeed, the sound of one hand clapping is going on right now. Like these folks were saying, consciousness of the planet Everything waking up and things aren't what they seem. The light pouring in right now. So magnificent to behold. Yes, all. Folks with their Merkabas are glowing. It's happening in spite of the best efforts of our wayward children. They are finished. Well, it says here McCarthy appears to have votes to win the 15th ballot, which they're counting right now. As uh, he's big, uh-oh. I think that's done dirt cheap. Yeah, some kind of a deal was struck between Gates and McCarthy, and that cannot be anything but what you just said. Thank you, Mother. This is a hollow story. Oh, my goodness. It's holding on to the old stories, old timelines that cannot continue in this new reality that's unfolding. And what you're watching is... The selling of souls for a dime. And what's the dime? Hmm. Not going to get much. All the folks that are dancing around. The votes are all guilty of high treason. 
Yeah. It's an old story. This is why. Well, we got to take the, I mean, is it 9-11 somewhere lurking around here to beat Helen Indeed. All the issues. We have all the closets, Mother. All the closets. All the skeletons are coming out. Oh, my God. It's... We're going to do a Bonnie on them. (laughs) It's about raising it up right now. The light pouring in is this particular moment that whether these light forms know it or not they're getting raised up and that's a good thing and compassion and kindness help in these manners as what the wisdom says kindness and compassion work miracles more than the old stories about control and violence that is at an end. Right now, as we are experiencing this wolf moon in the sign of cancer, goddess comes in and changes the story here it's about love in spite of what you're seeing it's how things are unfolding in a very good way. We will say it again. We've already won. And this story is complete. The catch-up that's happening (laughs) is the dissolving of the old timelines as we are talking about it it is dissipating want to hold on yet how can you hold on to fairy dust Gotta believe in the magic. 
and there is big magic afoot at this time with what's coming in these moments right now there are folks here that come from realms upon realms where there's only this divine compassion pouring forth in spite of all that is going on focus on the light coming in it's how we get through this with flying colors about accountability and justice. Like this one was told, Lady Master Victory, Lady Master Liberty, Lady Master Justice is at hand. golden rays of that light pouring in shifting everything in this moment so mother is zero a number is zero a number yes <laughs> yes I was going to say maybe sometimes, maybe not. It is a, a way place. in which as you go through the zero, you go through the portal and you end up on the other side of the portal. Right. And is it? Go through it in the point, what's it called? Zero point module yes unconditional divine neutrality of the hearts once you grasp a different point of view as master obi-wan speaks of you get a different perspective of how the lay of the story goes right now There is a different point of view that is happening. More of the folks on this planet 
than ever before. One, peace, not war. And that is what's unfolding. That is the real As Brian said, we're growing up, Mother. It is true. Yeah, I remember that statement when I was little. It's about time. Yes. (laughs) And we must be on our way. Thank you, Mother. Thank you for just your presence in our lives always. We are here for the duration of this completion. As one cycle ends, another begins. Mm -hmm. It's about this story called Satyuga, the Golden Age. You want to know how to move reality, space, and time? Use the Merkaba vehicle. This right here. Something came into my mind just now, a figure, you know. Uh, our lovely former President Trump, he racked up $8 trillion on the debt of the... Uh, land here we're all living in and all of us <clears throat> oh numbers numbers we we'll just take the eight part turn it on its side and talk about infinity and say here's some homework infinite <laughs> abundance yes that's unfolding right now it is the Jenny abundance. Logan, teach me how to love, Mother. The abundance of the wisdom that is pouring forth from Creator's source, the sun that is radiating down into this realm as we absorb the monoatomical light. Mm-hmm. It changes our cells. You heard Kryon say it. Some of us don't need cells. Not sure where to go with that statement. (laughs) Yet it is about the quantum physics. Thought manifested the spark. Light is one. Glitz in the light of the most radiant one. The ghost, the ghost, the ghost. Adonis, the Ghost, 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 
Christmas, little Christmas. Um, I was, I was sitting with the energies of Mount Kailash and the light pouring in right now on the planet. And it is so awesome to see just golden radiant light pouring in Mm. and lighting everything up with that monoatomic gold yes Mm -hmm. and it's just to stay in that radiance of that golden light it lifts everything up to the highest levels. Hmm. I passed the ducky stick. Okay. Thank you, you Mother. Thank you, Rama. Rama Mama. <laughs> All right, we're going to pass the talking stick to you know who. We're going to tr- just remember that it's not about polarity. Reverend Barber's going to be making statements that are not exactly clear, but we were going to do the transmuting here. Uh, the who done it stuff. We know who done it. So transmute the energy and we'll witness this for the sake of uh, completion. Let's do that. Yes. Age, race, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Now. The events that day felt like a wake-up call for me and many others that political violence is real. The worst part 
is that our elected leaders allowed this to happen. And yet this week, people who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. Two years ago today, supporters of Donald Trump violently stormed the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The January 6th insurrection shut down Congress as lawmakers had to flee for safety. Today, part of Congress is effectively shut down, again, as Republican lawmakers cannot agree on a House speaker. Until then, no member of the House can be sworn in. This all comes as five members of the Trump-backed Proud Boys are on trial for seditious conspiracy. We'll talk about all this with Andy Campbell, author of We Are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. Then, as Russian President Vladimir Putin unilaterally declares a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas, we'll hear from Bishop William Barber on why he supports a Christmas truce on both sides. A ceasefire is not the same as an end to war, but it can set the stage for the more long-term diplomatic action that can lead to a long-term peace. A ceasefire for as long as it holds means that no one is being killed by war and that means maybe just maybe the difficult work of beginning serious negotiations can go forward. All that and more coming up. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden announced Thursday the United States will begin blocking migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba from applying for asylum if they're apprehended crossing the U.S.-Mexico border outside of ports of entry. The asylum seekers will instead be expelled to Mexico without due process as part of an expansion of the contested Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy. This comes as the Supreme Court set to decide Title 42's fate in its next session. Biden also announced a small number of Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Cubans will qualify for a program granting them temporary permission to live and work in the U.S. if they apply for the relief from their home countries and already have financial sponsors in the U.S. The announcement came just days before Biden's scheduled to visit El Paso, Texas Sunday to meet with local officials. It'll be Biden's first trip to the U.S.-Mexico border as president. During his remarks Thursday, Biden made no mention of the harsh U.S. sanctions that have contributed to poverty in Nicaragua and Cuba, nor did he acknowledge the catastrophic legacy of U.S interventions in Haiti. My message is this. If you're trying to leave Cuba, Nicaragua, or Haiti, you have, and we or have agreed to begin the journey to America, do not, do not just show up at the border. Stay where you are and apply legally from there. Starting today, if you don't apply through the legal process, you will not be eligible for this new parole program. In a statement, the American Civil Liberties Union said, quote, Title 42 expulsions were already an unjustifiable misuse of the public health laws. Let's be clear. Nothing requires the administration to expand Title 42 while it claims to be preparing for its ending. There is simply no reason why the benefits of a new parole program for Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Haitians must be conditioned on the expansion of dangerous expulsions, the ACLU said. 
The House of Representatives adjourned for the third consecutive day Thursday evening without electing a House Speaker after Republican leader Kevin McCarthy failed to gain the needed 218 votes after 11 ballots. 20 far-right Republicans continued to oppose McCarthy even after he offered the major concessions that reports emerged late Thursday. Some holdouts may be on the verge of throwing their support behind McCarthy. All 212 Democrats backed New York Congressmember Hakeem Jeffries at every round of voting over the past three days. Until a House Speaker is elected, no member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in. We'll have the latest on this story after headlines. President Biden is delivering a speech today to mark the two-year anniversary of the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. Biden will also award Presidential Citizens Medals to 12 people who responded to the insurrection and Trump's attacks on democracy after the 2020 election. Among them, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss a pair of mother-daughter election workers from Georgia who received death threats and torrents of online abuse from Trump supporters. President Trump again attacked them this past week on social media. Another honoree is former Washington, D.C. police officer Michael Fanon who is beaten and electrocuted with a taser by the right-wing mob who attacked the Capitol. Fanon called the experience a wake-up call about the dangers of political violence. People who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. People like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said insurrectionists would have won on January 6th if she had been involved. Or Representative Matt Gates, who encouraged voters to arm themselves at the polls. On Thursday, the partner of deceased Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, who died one day after responding to the insurrection, sued Donald Trump and two rioters who attacked Sicknick for his wrongful death. Sicknick died after suffering two strokes. The medical examiner said the events of January 6th, quote, played a role in his condition. We'll have more on the second anniversary of the Capitol insurrection after headlines. South Carolina's Supreme Court struck down the state's six-week ban Thursday, ruling it violates South Carolina's Constitution. Meanwhile, Democratic lawmakers in Minnesota have advanced a bill to codify abortion rights in their state, where the procedure is still legal after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of last year. But in a blow for reproductive rights, Idaho's Supreme Court upheld a near-total ban on abortion. Idaho's high court also reaffirmed a law allowing some family members of a fetus to sue health workers who provide an abortion and a law criminalizing health providers who perform the procedure after cardiac activity is detected, which can happen as early as four to six weeks into a pregnancy. Russian President Vladimir Putin has unilaterally declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas. Despite the declaration, fighting continued today along the Eastern Front in Kyiv. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky rejected Putin's truce, saying Russia wants to use Christmas as a pretext to stop Ukrainian advances in the Russian-occupied Donbass region. 
использовать Рождество как прикрытие. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Thursday he would welcome any truce in Ukraine during Orthodox Christmas, but warned talks between Moscow and Kyiv to bring the war to a permanent end are not yet possible. I think we are still not uh, in a situation where we can see peace in the immediate horizon. Peace that we believe will have to come one day, and peace based on the UN Charter and international law. Guterres' remarks came after Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan offered to mediate an end to the war in Ukraine. This week, the U.S., Germany and France announced plans to supply Ukraine with armored combat vehicles, including French-made light tanks and U.S.-made Bradley fighting vehicles. The 50 Bradleys would be part of a new U.S. military aid package to Ukraine worth nearly $3 billion. The U.N. Security Council Thursday called for maintaining status quo at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque. Following a highly criticized visit to the site by Israel's new extremist security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir. But the Security Council did not commit to any action in response to the provocation by Israel. For decades, the Al-Aqsa Mosque has only allowed Muslims to worship at the holy site. Meanwhile, a new proposal by the freshly installed far-right government coalition led by Benjamin Netanyahu would sharply limit judicial powers by allowing a simple majority of lawmakers to invalidate Israeli Supreme Court decisions. Elsewhere, the longest-serving Palestinian prisoner in Israel, Karim Yunus, was freed Thursday after spending more than 40 years behind bars. Yunus was arrested in 1983 over the killing of an Israeli soldier. He was welcomed home in his village, Avada, which is located within Israel. Yunus also visited the gravesite of his mother, who died just eight months ago. He spoke when he was released. It is clear for everyone now that the Israeli government, especially the current one, is seeking to subdue our people. They want us to be their slaves. They want us to be nothing so they can use us always. We say that that is not going to happen and they will not get what they want. Here in the United States, the nation is reporting Harvard's Kennedy School of Government has withdrawn a fellowship from the former head of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, over Roth and Human Rights Watch's condemnation of Israeli human rights abuses. China says it will reopen its border with Hong Kong this weekend after three years of pandemic restrictions that left Hong Kong largely cut off from the Chinese mainland. The reopening comes after the World Health Organization accused China of downplaying the severity of a massive COVID-19 surge that's going largely unreported in China's official statistics. This is the WHO's emergencies director, Mike Ryan. We believe that the, the current numbers being, being published from, from China underrepresents the true impact of the disease in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of uh, ICU admissions, and particularly in terms of deaths. 
China has been reporting daily COVID deaths in the single digits, even as experts say it's in the midst of a surge that could kill hundreds of thousands of people. Meanwhile, the European Union has urged member nations to require travelers from China to show proof of a recent negative coronavirus test and suggested governments should expand genomic surveillance at airports for new coronavirus variants. Chinese officials rejected the restrictions as discriminatory and politically motivated. They also denied underrepresenting the severity of China's COVID outbreak. In Utah, eight people were found dead at a home in the town of Enoch on Wednesday in the apparent murder-suicide. Authorities say 42-year-old Michael Haight fatally shot his mother-in-law, his wife, and their five children before turning the gun on himself. The killings came two weeks after Haight's spouse filed for divorce. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have already been 12 mass shootings in the United States since the start of the new year. And here in New York, Uber drivers held a one-day strike Thursday as they continued to demand the ride-hailing corporation drop its lawsuit aimed at blocking a pay raise approved by the Taxi and Limousine Commission. It's the second 24-hour strike by Uber drivers since wage increases failed to go into effect in December. Democracy Now! spoke with Verity Desai, the executive director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance at a picket line outside Uber's New York headquarters Thursday. This was a raise that was in the hands of the drivers. The city of New York voted on it after almost a year of public hearings. Uber, in the middle of the night, snatched this raise out of the driver's hands to put it in their own pockets. Meanwhile, in the same lawsuit Uber's filed to stop this raise for the drivers, they've admitted that they've been charging the public in New York City 48% more since 2019. You know, um, the only one that haven't gotten this increase are the drivers, and they're the ones that really desperately need it. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, we look at the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection and how far-right Republicans have effectively shut down part of Congress again. Stay with us. Democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, 
marks two years since the January 6th Capitol insurrection, when President Donald Trump incited thousands of supporters to violently storm Congress in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The attack on the Capitol briefly shut down Congress as lawmakers fled for their safety from the mob, which included members of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and other violent extremist groups, many of them armed. Two years later, part of Congress has been effectively shut down again. This time, because a group of far-right Republicans, including many who supported the January 6th insurrection, have blocked Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's attempt to become House Speaker. This means no member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in. Over the past three days, the House has held 11 votes to choose a speaker. McCarthy has failed each time to win the needed 218 votes to become speaker, despite making numerous concessions to his critics in the so-called Freedom Caucus. This is now the longest speaker election since 1859 just before the Civil War. Meanwhile, President Biden is preparing to give a major speech today marking the second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. He will also award Presidential Citizens Medals to 12 people who responded to the insurrection and Trump's attacks on democracy after the 2020 election. Among them, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, a mother-daughter pair of election workers from Georgia, who received death threats and torrents of online abuse from Trump supporters. Another honoree will be former Washington, D.C. police officer Michael Fanon, who is beaten and electrocuted with a taser by the right-wing mob. Fanon spoke Thursday and made the link between the January 6th insurrection and the congressional chaos playing out today. But if I could guarantee you one thing about the new House majority is this. This is just the beginning. This type of chaos will happen every single day in the House. As some of the most extreme politicians our country has ever seen hold our democracy hostage. I should know. Tomorrow marks two years since the day I almost died defending the Capitol from people who thought overthrowing the government was a good idea. The events of that day felt like a wake-up call for me and many others that political violence is real. The worst part is that our elected leaders allowed this to happen. And yet this week, people who encouraged and even attended the insurrection are now taking their places as leaders in the new House majority. People like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said insurrectionists would have won on January 6th if she had been involved. Or Representative Matt Gates, who encouraged voters to arm themselves at the polls. That was former Washington, D.C. police officer Michael Fanon. On Thursday, the partner of the deceased Capitol Police officer, Brian Sicknick, who died one day after responding to the insurrection, sued Donald Trump and two of the rioters who attacked Sicknick for his wrongful death. Brian Sicknick died after suffering two strokes. The medical examiner said the events of January 6th played a role in his condition. 
Biden will also honor Capitol Police Officer Carolyn Edwards, who suffered a brain injury after being beaten by rioters. She testified before the January 6th House Select Committee in June. When I fell behind that line and I saw, I can just remember my, my breath catching in my throat because I, what I saw was just a, a war scene. It, it was something like I'd seen out of the movies. I, I couldn't believe my eyes. There were officers on the ground, um, you know, they were bleeding, they were throwing up, they were, you know, they had, uh, I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood. Um, you know, I, I was catching people as they fell. I, you know, I was... It was carnage. It was chaos. I can't. I can't even describe what I saw. The second anniversary of the January 6th insurrection comes as five members of the far-right group Proud Boys are on trial for seditious conspiracy. Opening arguments expected next week. We're joined now by Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost and the author of We Are Proud Boys, how a right-wing street gang ushered in a new era of American extremism. Andy, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So today is the second anniversary. Two years ago today, the violent mob attacked the Capitol. And it is so interesting as they stopped congressional proceedings then for a time that today, two years later, we're seeing the House paralyzed. No member of the House of Representatives can be sworn in, the new ones or the old ones. No one gets classified briefings, nothing, uh, because of what's happening here. Can you draw the parallel between who was involved two years ago and who was involved today? Sure, and thanks, Amy, for having me on again. Look, we are seeing a GOP that's hoist by its own petard. I mean, this is a, a party that has built its identity around nationalism, around bigotry, around political violence, and particularly around trolling, not around policy necessarily. And so now you have these 20 holdouts who are that uh, uh, directive personified. You have people like uh, Lauren Boebert and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, you have uh, Paul Gosar, a, a, an avowed sort of white nationalist character who pals around um, with extremists and, and goes on, uh, goes to white nationalist conferences to speak. And so you have these very extreme far-right voices throwing a wrench in the spokes, and this is exactly uh, what the MAGA party has built for themselves. And so they're kind of seeing the consequences of their own actions uh, when these holdouts are kind of holding Congress hostage. Uh, but what they're doing is, is they're 
you know, displaying power. Uh, the, the very far right, very racist, very loud and popular uh, troll wing of the GOP has sort of been building this parallel power structure alongside the GOP for years under Trump. And now with this, you know, four vote majority that Republicans have in the House, they're able to exercise that power um, by holding these uh, the, the speaker hostage here. And, and so it's interesting that this is happening on uh, you know, the anniversary of January 6th, because those same people uh, who are holding Congress hostage now are, are the same people who helped foment the insurrection and who, after the fact, still uh, cast doubt on the 2020 election. Many of them are uh, Trump loyalists and, and election deniers and voted to overturn the election. And so what we're seeing is that the spirit of January 6th is still very much alive, and, and we are seeing it play out uh, in the halls of Congress today. So if you can talk about, since you wrote the book, We Are Proud Boys, the connection between the pro-insurrectionist Congress members um, and the Proud Boys and talk about who they are. But I wanted to ask you about the people who are leading this movement right now. I mean, you have what, Matt Gates, the congressman from Florida who is mm -hmm. under investigation for underage sex trafficking. You've got Lauren Boebert from, uh, she ran a restaurant in what rifle Colorado called Shooter's Grill. It's been shut down because the owners of the building wouldn't renew her lease. She encouraged her waiters to openly carry guns as they served uh, their customers. Uh, and now they've removed magnetometers. This is one of the demands of the of Boebert and the others in this ultra-conservative so-called Freedom Caucus from, um, from the House. Uh, she had originally, I think it's the reason why House Speaker at the time, Nancy Pelosi, had put up magnetometers, said she was going to carry a Glock onto the floor of the House. Uh, looking at the New York Post, um, they said she refused to say Tuesday if she plans to bring a gun into the House of Representatives as authorities removed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's magnetometers from the entrances. Uh, go through these people one by one and talk about their connection to Proud Boys, Oath keepers, three percenters, and what happened two years ago today. Sure. I mean, Lauren Boebert is sort of uh, leading the charge here on this ultra far right uh, group of holdouts. She, you know, she also called Ilhan Omar a terrorist. I mean, if you try to look at Boebert's policies, uh, they are few and far between. A lot of these uh, a lot of these guys want to push very nationalist policy. Uh, they want to uh, push the you know, anti-woke agenda. I think they want to uh, uh, criminalize uh, doctors who give gender affirming care. So these are sort of cruel policies if you look really hard. But most of all, uh, these are sort of uh, bigoted trolls, very connected to uh, the insurrection. You have uh, Paul Gosar of Arizona, who, like I said, went on uh, to to speak at a white nationalist conference two years running alongside Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, he said at one point that he uh, fomented the revolution on January 6th. Uh, you have Matt Gates, uh, who has pushed uh, uh, white supremacist conspiracy theories about the replacement of white men, uh, and has also uh, had Proud Boys work security at his events uh, over the years. Uh, and so you have 
these characters are, are connected to the insurrection in the way that uh, that they believe uh, it was justified, or at least you know believe that the election was stolen. And then the Proud Boys are these foot soldiers that act on behalf of the GOP's grievances. And so while Boberts, the Boberts and Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens of America are pushing, uh, you know, anti-LGBTQ sentiment, uh, uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, the Proud Boys are mobilizing on these grievances. And certainly uh, we know that, that dozens of Proud Boys joined hundreds of other extremists uh, uh, to make January 6th happen. And so there is absolutely a connection uh, there between the people sitting there in the House today and the Proud Boys. And, I, you know, I think it shows uh, that, that, you know, what we are looking at happening out there isn't it, like Bobert isn't trying to make uh, uh, some real policy changes happen today. She's trying to uh, show power and show that this small group of ultra far right, uh, uh, you know, insurrectionists um, can wield power power in the Republican Party. And, and the Proud Boys, um, being those foot soldiers, are sitting uh, in, in court uh, today. The jury's being selected for their seditious conspiracy trial. And it, what's interesting about that trial is that we're going to learn more about their connections to the GOP leading up to uh, January 6th, because there are a number of Proud Boys who have already pleaded guilty, and they will be testifying against their own in that seditious conspiracy trial. So we may learn more uh, about their connections to people like Roger Stone, Trump's top confidant, who counts the leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, as one of his friends and mentees. Uh, we may learn more about the security that they did uh, for certain members of Congress, and, and we may learn more about their connection to Trump's inner circle. So this is going to be a, a huge trial, and it's going to have big implications uh, for the GOP going forward. So tell us who the Proud Boys are, uh, who Enrique Tarrio and the at least four other Proud Boys who are on trial are. Right. Uh, so in, uh, the Proud Boys are a far-right street gang uh, that were launched in late 2016, early 2017. Uh, they were created on the far-right talk show of Gavin McGinnis, uh, who is also the co-founder of, of Vice Media. And he built them uh, to basically mobilize on Trump and the GOP's grievances and go out there and do what crusty old Republicans can't do and fight people in the street based on what the GOP is complaining about. And so on any given day, the complaint might change. Sometimes it's BLM, sometimes it's Antifa, sometimes it's LGBTQ. Right now, it's very much LGBTQ. Um, and, and sometimes it's uh, the election. And they have mobilized over the years over and over based on those grievances. Now, there are five Proud Boys on trial for seditious conspiracy. The Justice Department believes that they had a hand not only in uh, uh making the insurrection happen on the day, but planning it leading up. Uh, Trump, uh, during a debate in 2020, um, uh, said, Proud Boys, stand back, stand by. And there's some debate over what he meant by that. But the Proud Boys immediately took it as marching orders. One of the guys on trial, Joe Biggs, uh, posted a blog 
titled uh, The Second Civil War is Coming. He said, clean your guns, get ammo, uh, and be ready uh, because it's about to get really bad. Uh, Enrique Tarrio started raising funds, amassing weapons, uh, amassing people, recruiting. Uh, he said he told me in an interview uh, that he'd never gotten so many recruiting calls uh, than in the moments after Trump said, stand back, stand by at that debate. So they were gearing up. Uh, for January 6th, which they saw as their final stand for Trump. And they were doing what they do best, which is amassing all of these people, you know, uh, different extremists from across the country, pulling them, telling them to show up on January 6th for Donald Trump. And then, of course, we know uh, from the January 6th committee's uh, uh, reports and, and the, the convictions that have already happened, um, that that once the plan uh, was in in place once the insurrection began, uh, Trump did absolutely nothing to to stop the the mob, and in fact incited them throughout the day uh, uh, to continue on this parade of violence. The I wanted to go to a YouTube video created by Vic Berger back in 2018, which features Gavin McGinnis, the founder of the Proud Boys, discussing the group's origins as well as calling for violence in the streets. I started this gang called the Proud Boys. And uh, Out Boys, the Proud Boys. What is the, what's Proud Boys about? We will kill you. That's the Proud Boys in a nutshell. We will kill you. We look nice. We seem soft. We have boys in our name. But like Bill Butcher and the Bowery Boys, we will assassinate you. Now, part of the reason I agreed to do the talk is because I'm allowed to bring all my guys. And we can fight our way in and fight our way out. Yeah. I think it's our job to do it. So if you can talk about McGinnis and also this latest headline this week, um, NYPD facing new backlash after officers escorted members of the far right Proud Boys to a subway station, apparently helping them evade their fares after they sought to disrupt Drag Story Hour, a popular reading event for children at a Queens library um, last year. Um, and, you know, you have them cracking down on um, uh, on. Fair evasion, flooding subway stations with police, but they're escorting the Proud Boys. Right, right. So, uh, you know, who you heard right there is, is Gavin McGinnis. That guy you just heard is, is expected to possibly be a character witness for his Proud Boys at their sedition trial. So you can you, you can see uh, uh, what, you know, their ideology is. Their ideology is political violence. He put political violence in their rule set um, and, and certainly. The misogyny and anti-LGBTQ and, and racist sentiment is within their tenets. And so he kind of created that worldview for the Proud Boys and unleashed them on the world. But but like you said, with you know this incident in New York, uh, the, the Proud Boys have shown resiliency time and time again, despite being involved in all sorts of domestic extremism events. January 6th and all of the hundreds of prosecutions uh, that we've seen following that has done almost nothing to tamp down our street level political violent uh, extremist sect. I mean, the Proud Boys are mobilizing today at rapid clip. Uh, you have 
Tucker Carlson on Fox News complaining about Drag Queen Story Hour and the Proud Boys are going out in the street and harassing and attacking Drag Queen Story Hours. This isn't just in New York. It's all across the country in public well, libraries and, and anywhere they have drag events. Well, I know, Andy, you're headed down to Washington, D.C. to cover this seditious conspiracy trial of the Proud Boys. And we hope to have you back on, Andy Campbell, senior editor at HuffPost, author of We Are Proud Boys, How a Right-Wing Street Gang Ushered in a New Era of American extremism. Coming up, the Russian president's call declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine. We'll hear from Bishop William Barber on why he supports a Christmas truce on both sides back in 30 seconds. Silent night Holy She's the director of Theo Musicology and Cultural Arts at Repairers of the Breach. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian President Vladimir Putin's unilaterally declared a 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine to mark Russian Orthodox Christmas, which will be celebrated Saturday. In Kyiv, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky rejected Putin's truce, saying Russia wants to use Christmas as a pretext to stop Ukrainian advances in the Russian-occupied Donbass region. Сейчас они хотят использовать Рождество как прикрытие, чтобы... They now want to use Christmas as a cover, albeit briefly, to stop the advances of our boys in Donbass and bring equipment and munitions and mobilized troops closer to our positions. What will that give them? Only yet another increase in their total losses. On the streets of Kyiv, Ukrainians also express skepticism over Putin's ceasefire. I think this is utter hypocrisy. On the 31st of December, there was no peace. We were under such bombing for New Year's Eve. Just hypocrisy on Putin's side. This is someone funny joke. In the history of our country, there were so many times that we trusted the Russians, and this never led to anything good. We can't trust them, and we have to be cautious. I don't believe Russian President Vladimir Putin will go through the ceasefire. We celebrated New Year's under bombs and missiles. I couldn't go anywhere with my daughter. There was peace for an hour or two, and that's it. Vladimir Putin's announcement about a 36-hour ceasefire comes as calls grow for an end to the devastating war which began when Russia invaded Ukraine February 24th. On Thursday, the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan, spoke to both Putin and Zelensky by phone. Turkey's offered to mediate between the two countries. Here in the U.S., over a 1,000 faith leaders recently called for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. The signatories included, yes, members of the Russian Orthodox Church, but also the Reverend Jesse Jackson and Bishop William Barber. We turn now to hear Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign in his own words. During an event organized by Repairers of the Breach, Barber gave a sermon Christmas Eve titled No War, A Moral Call for a Christmas Truce. After reflecting on the Christmas truce in 1914 during World War I, Barber said now is the time for a ceasefire in Ukraine. We desperately need a ceasefire and negotiations to end the brutal Russian war in Ukraine today. Like Rachel in the Bible and Pope Francis, who just the other day wept in public 
over this war. We must mourn publicly over the war. And something is terribly wrong in our churches and houses of worship if we try to have Christmas without doing that. Listen to the Pope's prayer. Immaculate Virgin, today I would have wanted to bring you the thanks of the Ukrainian people for peace. This is what he said before he was overwhelmed by emotion. And then he said, instead, once again, I have to bring you the pleas of children, the pleas of the elders, the pleas of the fathers and the mothers, the pleas of the young people of the martyred land, which is suffering so much. The report President Zelensky brought to Congress this week sounded like a modern day description of the context in which Isaiah prophesied. Russia, he said, has turned the Ukrainians sky into a source of death for thousands of people. Russian troops have fired 1,000 missiles at Ukraine and they use drones to kill us with precision. We need a ceasefire to interrupt this warring madness. A ceasefire doesn't mean both sides are equally culpable for starting the war. But it can have the impact of stopping the massive, massive killing on both sides. Accurate numbers are difficult to find, but it is clear that at least thousands of Ukrainian civilians and many tens of thousands of Ukrainian and Russian military forces have been killed already. A ceasefire could stop the killing. A ceasefire is not the same as an end to war, but it can set the stage for the more long-term diplomatic action that can lead to a long-term peace. A ceasefire for as long as it holds means that no one is being killed by war. And that means maybe, just maybe, the difficult work of beginning serious negotiations can go forward. We do need a ceasefire in Ukraine. In fact, the question might be, when do we need a ceasefire in Ukraine? And we might answer, we have needed a ceasefire since February 24, exactly 11 months ago today, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, yes, some say that the U.S. government provoked Moscow by expanding NATO to the east and stationing nuclear weapons in Europe. But even if that is true, it is also true that none of these provocations justify Russia's invasion. Russia's war is illegal, immoral, deadly, and dangerous. The day Russia began seizing Ukrainian territory and killing Ukrainian civilians, we needed a ceasefire. When Ukrainian troops began turning the tables and started reclaiming some of the lost territory, we needed a ceasefire to prevent more death and destruction. We needed a ceasefire then, and we need a ceasefire today. Why? First, because the human cost especially for the Ukrainian civilian, is too high. 
This is not a contest of wheels on a battlefield. It is a struggle for control that takes place every day in the places where people live and work and worship and go to school. The war is in the streets and in the homes. Too many elders, too many children, too many babies and men and women are dying as consequences of this war.
by the military industrial complex, and at first he said the congressional military industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. And the other night, even in the midst of his request for more weapons, President Zelensky did slip in a prophetic word, or may I say the spirit slipped in a prophetic word, if we were paying attention. He said, being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. This must be deeply wrestled with in this complex and contrary world. We need ceasefires everywhere. According to Brown University's Watson Institute, nearly a million people have died in the post 9-11 wars. 38 million people have been displaced by war, forced to flee their homes and communities to try to make a life somewhere else. The Poor People's Campaign found that the U.S. alone has spent $21 trillion on war, military mobilized borders, and incarceration over the past two decades. Money we haven't invested in affordable housing, green infrastructure, healthcare, education, labor rights, and living wages. The cost of war is too high. We need ceasefires everywhere. Militarism is central to all of the interconnected injustices that we fight against. Military spending diverts funds away from desperately needed social programs, from health care to child care, from jobs to sustainable energy, from elder care to education and more. Even now, we are passing a spending package that does not include living wages for the more than 55 million poor and low-wage workers in this country. It does not include health care for the more than 87 million people without health care or underinsured. And we now know that over 300,000 people have died so far from COVID because of the lack of health care, not because of the germ or virus. And thousands more have died because of how poor and unprotected they were not because of the power of the virus. And we are passing a budget that includes more money for the war economy than ever in history. We're doing it without passing protections for voting rights, without restoring the Voting Rights Act that Lyndon Baines Johnson said when it was won was the greatest victory in this country, even of all of our military victories. And because we're doing this, it leaves us with an impoverished democracy. We need a ceasefire. This year, military budget will top $858 billion, a sum greater than the entire national budgets of 174 countries around the world, including such wealthy nations as Turkey, the Netherlands, Saudi Arabia, and Switzerland. Just a small percentage of that money could provide living wages for every American, could provide health care for every American, could provide child care. And in a country so rich that we waste hundreds of billions of dollars, we still have tens of millions of children living in poverty, going to sleep hungry. It's a moral crime. At Christmas, the prophecy and the prophetic truths of Christmas demand that we interrupt this madness call for ceasefires. Say this does not have to be. 
So we need a ceasefire for the people of Ukraine. We need a ceasefire for the poor and hurting people around the world. Wherever there's war and violence, whether that war and violence is because of greed or lust for power or racism or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or homophobia, we need a ceasefire. And finally, we need a ceasefire in Ukraine right now because we are facing the most serious threat of nuclear escalation in 60 years. Russia and the United States together hold 90% of all the nuclear weapons in the world. Each side has enough nuclear weapons and nuclear firepower to destroy the whole world several times over. And that's incredibly dangerous for flawed human beings prone to lead the God we say we love to have that kind of power. Not only because of Russia's reckless nuclear threats, and not only because of Washington's trillion dollar investment in strengthening and modernizing its nuclear arsenal, we need a ceasefire. Because I don't believe either Washington or Moscow is planning a deliberate nuclear attack. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. Unlike other war zones where the U.S. and Russian forces have faced each other, there is no U.S.-Russian military-to-military hotline to avoid accidental escalation. They've had that in Syria, but they don't have it in Ukraine. An accidental move on either side could escalate to a nuclear exchange. It's not likely, but when we're talking about potential nuclear war, any threat that isn't zero is simply too large. More than a half a century ago, even before his speech in 1967, Dr. King said that the trajectory of modern war persuaded him that war could no longer be imagined as a negative good, a necessary evil to prevent some greater harm. The potential, he said, destructiveness of modern weapons totally rules out the possibility of war ever again achieving a negative good. He said, if we assume that mankind has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war and destruction. Because we stand in life at midnight we're always on the threshold of a new dawn. But our own sinfulness and actions could keep us from getting there. We need a ceasefire in order to make an honest assessment of where we are. As Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And maybe we can see it if we could pause for a moment. 
turning our eyes away and look at the bodies and the blood and the brokenness and assess the destruction and maybe for our sake and our children's sake a ceasefire could help us realize that the world needs an anti-war coalition People's Campaign and Repairers of the Breach, giving a sermon on Christmas Eve. Bishop Barber recently joined with over a thousand faith leaders in the United States calling for a Christmas truce in Ukraine. Other signatories include the Reverend Jesse Jackson of Rainbow Push, Professor Cornel West of Union Theological Seminary, Rabbi Arthur Waskow of the Jewish Renewal Movement, Reverend Jim Wallace of the Georgetown Center on Faith and Justice, Reverend Liz Theo Harris of the Cairo Center for Religion, they pop on the Plum Village Buddhist community. Bishop William Barber spoke at the Greenleaf Christian Church in Goldsboro, North Carolina, where he's been pastor for 30 years. He just announced he's retiring as the church's pastor to become the founding director of the new Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. That does it for our show. To see the whole speech, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Good. 
are in the songs, the shows, and Broadway musicals, A Jewish Legacy. Great Performances is brought to you by the Irene Diamond Fund. Major funding for this program was provided by the Patty and Jay Baker Foundation. Judith B. Resnick, the Blavatnik Family Foundation, the Barbara and Buddy Freitag Family Fund, in memory of Buddy Freitag, the Lawrence Hatcher Foundation, in memory of Arthur Lawrence, Philadelphia's National Museum of American Jewish History, celebrating culture and community, imagination and ideas, the Ira and Leonore Gershwin Philanthropic Fund, the Schubert Organization, the Leslie and Rosalind Goldstein Foundation, and the Raymond Tyen Family Charitable Trust. Major funding for great performances is provided by the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks, the Lewester T. Mertz Charitable Trust, Vivian Milstein, the Agnes Varis Trust, supporting affordable access to the arts, education, and healthcare, the Star Foundation, the Philip and Janice Levin Foundation, and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. Corporate support provided by Stuart Weitzman and family, proud supporters of Broadway musicals, A Jewish Legacy. Once upon a time, King Arthur wanted to take his knights on a quest to do a musical on Broadway, but this was a very, very bad idea, and I'm going to tell you why. great adventure. If you don't want to lose, victory depends upon the people that you choose. So listen, Arthur Darling, closely to this news. You won't succeed on Broadway if you don't have any Jews. 
You may have the finest sets, fill the stage with penthouse pets. You may have the loveliest costumes and best shoes. You may dance and you may sing, but I'm sorry, Arthur King, you'll hear no cheers, just lots and lots of booze. You may have butchmen by the score whom the audience adore. You may even have some animals from zoos. Though you poles and crouts instead, you may have unleavened bread, but I tell you, you are dead if you don't have any jewels. It's not funny unless it's true. And people only laugh because it, they, it's true. Rodgers and Hammerstein, um, you, you, you can name up all the Broadway composers. Jerry Herman, Irving Berlin. Everybody on Broadway except Cole Porter, Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, George Gershwin, Steve Sondheim. I'm trying to think if there was anybody not Jewish. husband, Adolph Green, and his wonderful partner, Betty Comden, and of course, Lenny Bernstein. Why were they, so many of them Jewish? There simply must be, Arthur, trust me, simply must be Jews. Is it that they were misfits, and then they all found themselves in musical theater because it was a place where, with their unusual brains, they could all collaborate and coexist in, in an environment that that allowed for that flexibility, maybe that was it. Maybe one day we'll say, oh, they all had ADD, and that's why they all ended up in musical theater. It wasn't about the Jewishness at all. For generations of Jewish songwriters, Broadway has been a place for transformation. On Broadway, the idea of outsiders overcoming obstacles could be dramatized in a uniquely American art form. On Broadway, melodies from Jewish prayers inspired new songs that would be embraced by millions. Broadway offered Jewish songwriters a chance to make it in America. And, in return, they fashioned an America of their own in songs and shows that are applauded around the world. Porgy and Bess and Showboat and um, uh, Oklahoma, these are ideas that are, are, are fictions. What, what do we make America into? How do we take what we know and make it into America? The Broadway musical is a sort of tipping point experience where a handful of composers and, and lyricists created uh, a way for all of us to experience the ideas that have become part of what we call the American dream. established its home near Times Square early in the 20th century, there was a lively theater that thrived downtown on the Lower East Side, where Yiddishkeit, meaning all things Jewish, predominated. There, 
Russian immigrants like Boris Tomashevsky and his wife Bessie pioneered a kind of musical theater which spoke to the multitude of greenhorns fresh off the boat. The Yiddish theater. There is a huge connection between Broadway and the American Yiddish theater. People don't get that anymore about how powerful Yiddishkeit was in the foundation of Broadway and that the direction of Yiddishkeit was twofold. It was to amuse, but it was also to instruct and that the theater could be used ultimately as a medium for showing people on stage how certain situations in life might play out and hopefully offering them the opportunity to learn from the examples that they saw on stage. I was a protege of the great Boris Palachewski. Oh, yes. yes, he taught me everything I know. I'll never forget, he, he turned to me on his deathbed and said, Maxim, what does that mean? Who knows? I don't speak Yiddish. Strangely enough, neither did he. Very often in listening to an early Broadway song, you could think that you're hearing a Jewish song. So. There's not all that much difference between a song like Greener Cuisine and the opening of Swanee. Composer George Gershwin, working with lyricist Irving Caesar, wrote Swanee, the most popular song of Gershwin's career. The song relied on a now shameful convention from the 19th century, in which a black-faced minstrel singer longed for a mythic Southland. By the time Swanee was a hit, the 20-year-old Gershwin had been working in the music industry for five years. Having dropped out of high school, at one point, Gershwin tried to write songs for the Yiddish theater, but was rejected as too American. The Gershwin family, like so many immigrant families, figured, give your kid music lessons, because that's one more step up the rung of ladder of assimilation and success, give you kids every possible chance. So they buy a piano for George's brother, Ira, and it's up on a crane, put through their window of their apartment, and suddenly George goes over and starts playing while he's been practicing on a player piano. So he gets music lessons and goes on to become a piano player on Tin Pan Alley, then a Broadway composer. Ira turns from writing clever, light verse to becoming a lyricist. 
And Ira's way of keeping up with this very revolutionary musical brother of his is to build lyrics around American slang. Ira loved to use colloquial expressions in his writing. The best example of that that I know is one weekend, probably in about 1936, uh, Ira and his wife, Leonore, came to spend the weekend with my parents. My father manufactured tomato products. And uh, during the course of that weekend, Ira said to my father, tell me, how come you call them tomatoes and your sister calls them tomatoes? And my father said to Ira, well, if I call them tomatoes, the farmers that I buy them from would not know what I was talking about. And everybody forgot about it. You like potato and I like potato. You like tomato and I like tomato. Potato. Potato. Tomato. Tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. But oh, if we call the whole thing off, then we must part. And oh, if we have a part, then that might break my heart. So if you like pajamas and I like pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling our father. The same year that George and Ira began writing shows together for Broadway, George was commissioned to write a piece for an evening of experimental music. The result was Rhapsody in Blue. within, you know, uh, classical forms that are contemporary, modern, modern uh, classical music, influenced with jazz. So his music really is a melting pot. It becomes a reflection of the American experience. George Gershwin was always experimenting, trying to bring jazz and blues and ragtime, basically black music, into mainstream Broadway musicals. There's a big affinity between the Jewish wail that you hear in the temple and the black spiritual or the, or the blues. I think a lot of it has to do with the minor key. I think it also has something to do with bent notes and altered chords. Um, the blues scale has... Uh, a kind of built-in minorness to it. That blue note is, well, I guess it's a blue note, though it existed before the blues, is the, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, that, doesn't that kind of sound Jewish to you? Yeah. Yeah, it's the it's the, the kind of little flat thing, as opposed to a, if I'm in the key of C, you know, sounds. Um, 
sort of Episcopalian. I mean, the Jewish thing, it's, it's, state, it's all minor, because, you know, Jews and their misery. The blacks basically always still had a little faith and hope. So it's they're at odds, not the Jews. Ira collaborated with George on one of the songs for Horgan and Bess. It is a song that debunks the Bible. It ain't necessarily, it ain't necessarily so. The things you're alive to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. That line is actually lifted from the liturgy. Because when you're called up to the Torah in the temple on Saturday, you have to make a blessing and uh, you say, which is the same thing as it ain't necessarily so. So to borrow a prayer over the Bible for a song that debunks the Bible seems to me to be the very definition of, of chutzpah, cheekiness. They were very clever. As lines like uh, about Jonah, he made his home in that fish's abdomen. Tunes written by Jews for non-Jewish audiences. The greatest ones have all been reversioned by the greatest African-American jazz artists. Some of the most important examples of jazz improvisation come from Gershwin tunes. That back and forth, that may not always be a, um, a cordial one. It might be a contentious one, but I just love that there's that there's a, a dialogue going on. I like that there's a battle. I like that there's a, a sense of, oh, you wrote this? I'm going to rewrite it. You were inspired by this thing I did. Now I'm going to take your inspiration and I'm going to redo it and take it one step higher. That sense of a kind of friendly competition uh, runs throughout American pop music. Chutzpah and friendly competition. This is my kind of show. Hi, I'm Susan Hellman. I'm here with Scott Sauer, and we are so honored to join you for this award-winning film. It's the first film to explore this phenomenon that Jewish Americans not only shaped, but really created Broadway musical theater as we know it. You know, we've heard from the children and grandchildren of some of the most influential composers of Broadway musical theater, and really, there's so much more to come, including many of the timeless anthems America has loved for a century, performed by legends from Barbara Streisand to, to Zero Mostel. Before we return to the film, we'll hear from lyricist Sheldon Harding. But first, now is your opportunity to applaud great musical theater and the history behind it, all by calling the number on your screen or going online and supporting this PBS station. When you do, we have some terrific ways to say thanks. Support this PBS station as a $6 monthly sustainer or with your $72 annual contribution and we'll thank you with the CD Broadway's Greatest Hits featuring 21 landmark recordings. 
Sing along to show-stopping performances from Oklahoma, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, and other favorites featuring a who's who of Broadway stars. Become a $7 monthly sustainer or make your $84 annual contribution and we'll thank you with the DVD of Broadway musicals, A Jewish Legacy. It includes all of the iconic performances and exclusive interviews shared in today's program. You'll enjoy the greatest moments in Broadway history from the legendary performers, writers, and producers whose contributions to the Broadway stage still inspire and move us today. Like candy in the sun is a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. The DVD features a who's who of performers along with legendary composers, writers, and producers we still it. All right, we're just going to go forward here. Call the number on your screen or visit us online to make a contribution. Thank you. All these songs that were created first on Broadway and later in Hollywood have really become a part of our collective culture. And it's amazing that this great body of American song was produced by a handful of people, most of them Jewish, starting with people like Jerome Curran, Irving Berlin and Harold Arlen, George and Ira Gershwin, Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart, all Jewish songwriters. I think Broadway was like a little Jewish club, and it's still a little Jewish club. It's a wonderful club to be in. My father couldn't wait to go to work. He didn't want to do anything else but work. Daddy met Larry Hart through friends, and in a very short time, they understood the same things that they wanted out of the musical theater, and nobody had done it yet. And they got along wonderfully. Gentlemen, you're about to be interviewed. Wait till I fix my tie. Don't you like being interviewed? Well, I don't mind. As long as you don't ask us which we write first. The words of the music. I'm not going to ask you that. Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart lived uptown. They came from successful families and both attended Columbia University. But getting their songs to Broadway wasn't easy as they reenacted a few years later for the movie cameras. It's all your fault, my fault. All you did was talk about your lyrics. Why didn't you let me play the music for him? I'm sick of this racket. Now you all have to go into the real estate business with your father. Come on. Just as Rogers was about to give up music and go into the baby's underwear business, the team struck gold with a song that turned their hometown into an isle of joy. Island two, it's lovely going through the zoo. It's very fancy on old Delancey Street, they say. This song, Manhattan, starts with these Lower East Side streets. It starts with Delancey Street and Mott Street, but it expands exponentially. It goes to Central Park, it goes to Coney Island, it goes to the theater district. 
their dreams were taking over all of manhattan and of course that's exactly what they did in their song Rodgers and Hart rhapsodized about the Lower East Side in song, this predominantly Jewish neighborhood was one of the most congested places on earth, frighteningly crowded, noisy, and filthy. Out of this rough and tumble world would emerge America's greatest songwriter. In 1893, Irving Berlin, then five years old, gets off the boat at Ellis Island in New York. His earliest memory as a child growing up in Russia was of a pogrom, a vigilante attack on his Jewish village. And he remembers hiding in a ditch with his brothers and sisters and parents, uh, watching Russian Cossacks burn down their village. Uh, then he comes to America, gets off the boat, looks around him, sees all these Americans. And he says, we stood there in our Jew clothes. He realized how different he was from everybody else. His father was a cantor who taught him how to sing the prayers in synagogue. But Berlin was drawn to all the different kinds of music he heard on the streets. The ethnic songs were very popular at that point. So there was Sadie Salome, Go Home. There was the Yiddish Nightingale, a beautiful song. The Yiddish Professor, Jake Jake, the Yiddish Ball Player. There was also Oh How That German Can Love. There was Sweet Italian Love and so forth. They were humorous love songs. Berlin was soon writing songs for Broadway reviews like the Ziegfeld Follies and for shows built around talents such as the Marx Brothers. songs for multi-ethnic America. Um, and as time went on, um, the business of pop songwriting, um, Berlin became the kind of poster boy for the immigrant Jewish sensibility transformed into the mainstream American. For many, becoming American meant changing your name. Israel Berlin became Irving Berlin. Jacob Gershowitz, George Gershwin. Isidore Hochberg morphed into Yip Harburg, who wrote the lyrics to The Wizard of Oz, with composer Hyman Arluck, better known as Harold Arlen. To be considered American, you got to sound a certain way. You got to look a certain way. And if your last name has too many syllables and makes people think of herring, um, you might not get the job. Someone's interesting online. Jewish 
songwriters almost never told Jewish stories. Instead, the main character might be a downtrodden flower girl with a Cockney accent in Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe's My Fair Lady, or a biracial singer passing as white in Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern's Showboat. Fish gotta swim Birds gotta fly I gotta love one man Till I die Can't help loving that man of mine One of the ways that Jewish songwriters on Broadway wrote about the experience of being Jewish is by writing about other outsiders. I'm not going to tell you the story of Jews in America, but I am going to tell you the story of an African-American on a riverboat. I'm going to use somebody else's story to tell you mine. The more the Jews are not writing about Jews, I think you could argue is when they're actually writing the most about Jews. The lyricist of Showboat, Oscar Hammerstein II, was part of a Broadway dynasty. He was raised Protestant, but his grandfather and namesake was a German-born Jewish impresario whose theaters helped to define Times Square at the turn of the century. As a teenager, Oscar went to summer camp and not only played sports, but learned to put on shows. For many of Broadway's songwriters, summer camps offered invaluable experiences. At Camp Paradox, Larry Hart was known as Shakespeare because his trunk was crammed with books instead of clothing. Richard Rodgers went to the same camp where he wrote songs when he wasn't teaching kids how to swim. own summer children's camp and I eventually became the drama counselor and put on shows there I was learning about those simple songs that became the best of times that became Mame and Hello Dolly without knowing it the camp that I went to let me put on the shows I was 13 or 14 years old but I I thought, that's the best present anybody ever gave me. It probably changed my life. I was told when I went to Camp Wigwam that uh, Steve Sontrag had gone there, but he said, I never went to Wigwam. I went to Camp Andrew Scargan. camps were not just initial training grounds for songwriters. Sometimes lifelong partnerships were formed there. My father was music directing at this camp. It was really his lucky day when this uh, weird, slutty guy, Adolph Green, arrived to play the Pirate King in Pirates of Penzance. And Lenny had heard about Adolph through Adolph's friends, how Adolph knew everything there was to know about classical music. On their first meeting, when my father found out that Adolf purportedly knew everything, he said, oh yeah, come over here. And they sat down at the piano and my father said, what's this? And he played something and 
I'd also say uh, Ravel, Fiano, Concerto, number two. Well, two seconds. Okay. I played another thing. Uh, Tchaikovsky is around uh, there, about four. Two seconds he knew it. And my father couldn't stump him until finally he played this one thing. What's this? And Adolf didn't know what it was. And Lenny jumped up, grabbed him, and kissed him. He said, I just made it up on the spot to try to really screw you. <laughs> They were best friends forevermore. And the thing about Adolf is that he had this kind of impish spirit. He had this liveliness and this antic quality. And then when Betty Comden became Adolf's working partner, and she was so lively and quick on the trigger and funny and sassy, the three of them had so much fun together. They really spoke to this zany part of my father. This uh, monstrous little duet is entitled, Carried Away. Modern man, what is it? Just a collection of complexes and neurotic impulses that occasionally break through. You mean, sometimes you blow your top, like me. I do. If they hadn't come along, maybe my father wouldn't have written musical theater, or certainly not the kind of musical theater that he wrote with Betty and Adolf that was so delightfully fun and goofy. I mean, after all, he was supposed to be a very serious maestro. In the 20th century, New York City attracted a large Jewish population. In the 1920s, nearly one in four residents was Jewish. Even so, the preponderance of Jewish songwriters on Broadway was, and is, a phenomenon. They're almost all Jewish, but the great exception that makes you wonder whether it's a rule at all is Cole Porter. What the hell is he doing in there? Porter, though he tried very hard to uh, write a successful Broadway show, hadn't uh, succeeded. Three shows flopped. And... Uh, he met Richard Rogers in Venice and played him some of his songs. And Rogers knew that this was an immensely talented man. And Porter confided at one point that he, he thought that he had finally figured out the secret of writing hits. Oh, Rogers said, what's that? And Porter said, I'm going to write Jewish tunes. I asked him if that story were true and he said, yes. So, that's it. And, and then I thought about it, and I thought, well, gee, you know, Cole Porter. Well, what could be more Jewish sounding than you'd be so nice to go home to? Especially since my father used to sing a song that went, Moses Gavain is Gavain is Nishtu. Remember that? That's why he used to sing it to me when I was a little boy. So, yeah, that, that I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that notion occurred to him. Semitic about that as well. Yep, Harvard, my father said even Cole Porter was Jewish because back in the uh, Inquisition times. 
he was really Jewish, and they forced him to become a Christian. See, so that's it. Said, and then he would sing some of Cole Porter's songs in a in a Hebraic uh, Middle Eastern chant. You know, <laughs> if you listen to "My Heart Belongs to Daddy," the part in it, the, uh, da 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 da, sounds a little like davening. Like praying in temple. It's no secret that Jewish Americans have had a huge influence on Broadway musical theater, but in this film, it still comes across as a revelation in many ways because of the film's depth and historic detail. That's right, Scott. What I loved when the composers sit at the piano and they really break down the songs, and you see that connection. You see the prayer that we say before the Torah, the blessing, and then Porgy and Bess. It ain't necessarily so. I never would have made that connection without these producers putting together this wonderful program for us. Well, hi, I'm Scott Sauer. Join. Okay, we're gonna jump the uh, promotion. Just gonna play it. This legacy of Jewish musicals and how they broke the songs down for us and the, the behind the scenes process that we get into. It really is absolutely enlightening and a chance for us to learn so much more about songs that we thought we knew that were our absolute favorites and now we're getting so much more out of it. Well, coming up, no topic is off limits for these songwriters, including a world war. But first, if you haven't made your contribution yet, now's your chance to support music, documentaries, and so much more on this PBS station. So visit us online or give us a call right now. Thank you. In the mid-1930s, Cole Porter's shows served as a great escape for theatergoers in the midst of the Depression. My heart belongs to death. Across the ocean in Germany, however, only a fortunate few Jewish families would find a way to escape from the wrath of the Third Reich. on which I arrived here six years ago. I remember very well the feeling I had as the ship moved down the harbor past the Statue of Liberty and the skyscrapers. All about us were exclaiming in amazement at the strange sights. But my wife and I had the sensation that we were coming home. Kurt Weil was Germany's leading theatrical composer, but he was also Jewish the son of a cantor. His work, including the popular Three Penny Opera, had been denounced by the Third Reich for being degenerate. January 30th, the reason I remember it is my birthday. January 30th, 1933, not my, the, my birth date, no, but my birthday 
um, was when uh, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Uh, Kurt Weill left that day, and a lot of people left that day. It was a huge exodus. Goodbye. They knew. Weill and his wife and muse, Lada Lenya, eventually ended up in the United States where the three-penny opera had already been performed on Broadway. Kurt Weill had already brought his own radical musical revolution to America before he got there. Uh, come join the army. Or, uh... His love of the of the ambivalence of major and minor and so many of his songs. Pirate There are Jewish melodic elements in his music. But he comes to America, and you can see the evolution of musical style as he writes a September song. But it's a long, long while from May to December and the days grow short when you reach September September song from the show Knickerbocker Holiday became Kurt Weill's first popular standard in America he was immediately recognized as a great composer one of the great landmark shows uh, uh, was Lady in the Dark. Mosshart took his own psychoanalysis and used it as a motivation for writing that show. No one had seen anything like it. Lady in the Dark paired Vile with Ira Gershwin, working on his first Broadway show since the premature death of his brother at the age of 38. A circus dream sequence made Danny Kaye a star when he was able to recite Gershwin's witty list of Russian composers in record speed. to this country is not more and not less than what the immigrants from early persecutions have brought here. All they ever could bring was the work of their hands and the work of their heads. That's what they offer to this country and what the people of this country are so ready to accept. Kurt Weill was incredibly, I would almost say obsessed with the idea of assimilation, obsessed with the idea of being different. He tried to make it in Hollywood. And they said his stuff is too Jewish. Uh, studio exec, your stuff is too Jewish. And he was perplexed by that. He said, Irving Berlin is a Russian Jew. I'm a German Jew. That's the only difference. We're both Americans. Though both Kurt Weill and Irving Berlin were Jewish American immigrants, Berlin's uncanny ability to write songs that felt American was unparalleled. 
Berlin humbly claimed he just had a little knack for songwriting, but time and again, he would create beloved anthems for his adopted country. This is the guy who will so assimilate to America. He will write the most popular Christmas song, White Christmas. And even though he's Jewish, writes the most popular Easter song, Easter Parade. It's the Horatiologist story told in Yiddish. He grows up and becomes the most American of all of us. God bless America, land that I love, stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. That song came from the heart and it was his thank you. To this country uh, that had taken him in and given him the chance to become who he became. Who would think that in the most American, major sounding work that Berlin wrote, there would be in it what I hear very clearly as this, well, the Jewish word would be chazanish, but it would be a real cantorial. <laughs> Well, let's take that. And I'll just put uh, the fundamental bass tone under it. God bless America. There were ministers who got up in church and said, what does a Jew have to do with asking God to bless America? There was real anti-Semitism. You know, you didn't feel that in the world of the theater because uh, that was a world in which nobody knew who everybody was or where they came from, just what they did. God Bless America became so popular, it almost replaced the national anthem. With the onset of World War II, Jewish songwriters joined the effort to lift the spirits of servicemen and the country at large. Berlin mounted a new show called This is the Army, with receipts donated to an army relief fund. The lyricist Dorothy Fields, who wrote on the sunny side of the street, cheered up servicemen at the stage door canteen. And Private Frank Lesser, later known for guys and dolls, wrote the wartime hit, Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition. Servicemen on leave were given free tickets to see Oscar Hammerstein's latest show, created with his new partner, Richard Rogers. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what 
Susan Hammerstein brought a new level of drama to the Broadway musical, often dealing with moral and racial issues for both the characters and the audience to confront. Hammerstein wrote both book and lyrics, bringing a kind of open-hearted humanitarianism to his work, which informed his personal life as well. I think Oscar was a liberal Jewish in that respect and cared a great deal about the world. You can tell by all the lyrics that he wrote, like Showboat, which was the, the landmark uh, unprejudiced musical, that he felt keenly about those things. He was one of the people who started the Pearl Buck Foundation. Those children were the product of Asian women and usually American GIs. In their Pulitzer Prize-winning show, South Pacific, Rogers and Hammerstein dramatized the experience of servicemen and women abroad and delivered an urgent musical plea for racial tolerance. It's not warning you. It happens after you're born. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be careful we taught. You've got to be carefully taught. It was something that they felt strongly about. Now they didn't try to do stories just because they could get their political leanings in front of the public. But it comes up all the time because it's there all the time. It mattered to them. Issues like bigotry and racism were no longer entirely off-limits. Director Jerome Robbins began working on a show called East Side Story that featured a conflict between Jews and Gentiles. Jerry Robbins came to Lane Bernstein and me to do a contemporary version of Romeo and Juliet. One or the other was to be Catholic and Jewish, I forget which. And what finally happened was I realized it was A.B.'s Irish Rose set to music. That was an enormous hit in the dark ages with a Catholic girl and a Jewish boy. And uh, so we dropped it. East Side Story was transformed years later 
when the creative team found a way to project the fears and tensions of assimilation onto a new group of immigrants. With a score by Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by a 27-year-old Stephen Sondheim, the show musicalized the conflict between white ethnics and Puerto Ricans finding their way in America. That's something that has made the show more timely today than it was then. When the word immigrant is said on the stage today, you can feel the whole audience freeze because of all this, I won't characterize it, stuff going on in Congress about immigrants. It's a nation of immigrants, which we are very busy trying to deny. My father never gave up on the idea that the world could become a better place. But he struggled with it because all these ghastly calamities kept happening in his lifetime, starting with World War II really being the big one, and then the bomb, and then he went through McCarthyism, which was so evil. So all the way through his life, he was constantly doing whatever he could to make the world a better place. Racism, not the least of these evils that he was trying to repair. And I really think he felt somehow that if he wrote a great enough piece of music, he could change the world. And you can really hear that struggle in West Side Story. It's about intolerance and hatred and the misery that that sows in the world. The idea that the world could become a better place, I love that thought. And you know, it really speaks to the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, or repairing the world. There's so much of that that we're learning about in these Broadway musicals. You know, the themes we see in this... We're just going to go forward, darling. Our ears. 
say thanks to us for this program. So make that contribution right now. Just go online or call the number on the screen. And thanks. from London and was raised in Chicago, where he became a classical pianist as a young child. Even with all his talent, he was insecure around the kids at school. I wanted to be liked, wanted applause badly, and I went out and bought 20 Irving Berlin songs over the weekend, and I memorized them. Alexander's Ragtime and with one. Played with all the power I had in my hands, my Beethoven power, rather Alexander Ragtime. <laughs> and I walked into that gymnasium Monday afternoon. I was an instant smash. After working as a band leader, a vocal coach, and a top composer in Hollywood, Stein longed for the creative freedom of Broadway. His score for the landmark show Gypsy, which starred Ethel Merman, seemed to draw on all of Stein's experiences in show business. I wanted Steve Sondheim to do the whole score. Merman, actually her agent didn't want Steve. So we needed a composer, and Jerry Robbins suggested Julie. Julie was very fertile, but he came from the old school. You know, he was not used to writing this kind of integrated stuff. So I just, I would just give him lyrics to set for the most part. I would write out the rhythms. Nethel Merman belted songs, what can I say? That's okay for some people who don't know they're alive. Some people can Every star has a trademark. And you better deliver that trademark somewhere for that audience. When I gave Steve the tune to some people, da, 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 da. but the release goes, but I. moment the audience said, oh, there's Merman. Steve understood what that was all about. And when he heard her do it, he knew what I was talking about. When we were out of town, it was Easter Passover. And Julie decided to give a Seder. Now, Ethel Merman, who had been born Zimmerman, was always terrified that somebody would think she was Jewish. She was German. And if you ran into her in the streets of Philadelphia and say, what did you do today, Ethel? She said, I was praying for the show. In church! <laughs> anyway, and at rehearsal, she always had a turkey sandwich. So Julie invites her to the Seder. She said to me, what, 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 what am I going to eat? I said, you're not going to have to eat any little Christian babies. You'll have 
capon, which is chicken, Ethel, chicken. Well, the night came and she dressed very properly. Little black dress. She even seemed to have less hair. Julia escorted her to the seat of honor. And she sat down. She opened her bag and took out a ham sandwich and put it on the plate. And Julie looked at her. This was his star, but it was his satyr. So he picked up the sandwich and threw it on the floor. He said, Ethel, you're insulting the waiters. <laughs> and then he turned around. She couldn't see him and he broke up. <laughs> Stein's ability to write great material for renowned singers like Merman was called upon for Funny Girl, a show based on the legendary Fanny Bryce. Everyone was singing, dancing, springing at the wedding yesterday. Needle on his fiddle, played some great time, and when Sadie heard him play. It was no mean feat to find a performer to take on the role of Fanny Bryce. Fanny was a one-of-a-kind musical talent who could make people both laugh and cry. After considering a number of versatile actresses, Julie Stein went to a cabaret show down in Greenwich Village. She opened her mouth. One note came out, and my arm was practically broken because Julie was pressing down. So this woman must play Funny Girl. He was absolutely right there, convinced, totally, 1,000%. And from there, that, that was the beginning of Funny Girl. Lovers are very special people. It's like you write for Merman, you go further because you know they're going to make it. And I accomplished it in Rain on My Parade. Yeah. You know, like, how's a girl going to see? In 
1964, the same year Funny Girl opened, the unimaginable happened. A musical devoted entirely to a Jewish story came to Broadway. Seven decades earlier, a violent pogrom had forced Irving Berlin's family to flee their Russian village. Now, a pogrom on stage would disrupt a wedding celebration in a Broadway musical. introduce ourselves. In place of your usual glamorous host, you have two frightened writers today. <laughs> this is Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the lyrics to Fiddler on the Roof. And this is Jerry Bach, who wrote the music to Fiddler on the Roof. And, and conducting the orchestra today, Milton Green, who conducts the orchestra at the Imperial Forest every night. There was skeptical feeling that this might not be a universal show, if any show can be termed universal, appealing to almost everybody. But this show, more than others, might be specifically designed for just a certain group of people. And we had this in mind, without destroying any of the authenticity or the folklore or the color of the show, we didn't want to limit it just for the appreciation of a small group. Well, many people have said, oh, you were so brave. We didn't feel that way. I thought, I'm a Jew, I fought Hitler. Uh, uh, certainly the American people, we all fought Hitler. What's so, what's so brave, what's so uh, avant-garde about doing a show about Jews? So we did. We did many backers auditions for the women who sell theater parties. And many of them were Jewish because they represented Jewish groups. Usually the way the audition would go is that I would explain what the book was in brief, and Jerry Bach and I would then sing some of the score. May the Lord protect and defend you. May the Lord preserve you from pain. Favor them, O Lord, with happiness and peace. Oh, hear our Sabbath who was our producer, after we would do the backers audition, he would have to get up and really try and convince these ladies that the show was going to be fun and not just a show that had a pogrom at the end of the first act and an exile at the end of the second act. So Hal had his work cut off for him because these women were very sensitive and they thought, our audiences are not going to like this. They asked me to direct it and I said, I'm the wrong guy. You've got to get Jerry Robbins, or someone like him, he can give it a universality with movement. So it won't be just a, 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 for a narrow audience. And the first question that Jerome Robbins asked was, what is this show about? We explained what we thought the show was about, and Robbins, to our surprise, said, no, that's not what gives these stories their power. And time and again, at all these meetings, he would say, what is this show about? And we'd say, well, it's about this, this farm. And we'd start to describe the plot. He'd say, no, 
And then finally, one day, I believe it was Sheldon Harnick said, well, I mean, it's about tradition. What else is it about? And Jerry said, that's what it's about, right about tradition. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers and still, ah, that's the older, everything evolves. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? And the daughter's theme was, and who does mama teach to mend and tend and fix, preparing me to marry whoever papa picks? Tradition. number tradition was common to every culture so the show was as common to Japanese family life as it was to Jewish family life and it went all over the world and every single place it went it became their family story despite the idiosyncrasies of what was Jewish about it In the meantime, I'm going to pass this talking stick with our emerald serpent feathered one. And uh, in the name of peace, we want peace. And we're going to Say about that. Here it comes, that talking stick. I love you, Raymore. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. I'm so glad you played that. It just brings back all those good musicals that I played in and stuff. Yeah, 15 years of it, right? yeah, a lot of years of it. I, I, I was, I, I was doing the fact in the nineties, I was doing shows, pit orchestra stuff for, for the community theater. So yeah, Fiddler on the Roof is, you know, one of those traditions. <laughs> so yeah, it was fun and I enjoyed the, program and I don't know whether the 15th round made it tonight um, I mean I'm sure the 15th round made it but I wonder if McCarthy got it you don't know if you heard anything I haven't but I did get to watch the McCarthy just about punch out Gates <laughs> oh is that what happened 
Oh, it was rowdy. Oh, it got it got really heavy duty. Yeah, yeah. What were they and, yelling about? Well, Gates had left, and then he came back later, and then he wrote it present, and and it, and uh, McCarthy was furious. He was so mad at him, and he went back there to talk to him, and he they looked like they were going to fight. <laughs> uh oh! I'm sure you'll see the clips. <laughs> and then they, then they tried to vote to adjourn, and and until Monday, and 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 they kind of had, but then they kind of didn't, and then they kind of went on and did another round, and I quit watching after that. Well, we'll find out tomorrow. Manana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of interesting to watch the 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 difference between where I was listening on the phone. <laughs> And witnessing what was going on on the boob tube. So. <laughs> well, thank you for filling us in, Lady Master. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have that to look forward to. <laughs> There'll be lots of discussion about it, I'm sure. Anyway, it was fun tonight. Thank you so much. And um, we look forward to this afternoon and do it some more. So I pass this talking stick over to you, Rama, here it comes. We'll see you dancing in your dreams tonight, too, everybody. Here, Rama's got a little closing piece. Thank you, Rainbird. This is Alan Watts. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. Oh, sort of. <laughs> now, we come here right at the start to an extremely important principle, which is the different points of view you get when you change your level of magnification. That is to say, you can look at something with a microscope and see it a certain way. You can look at it with the naked eye and see it in a certain way. You look at it with a telescope and you see it in another way. Now, which level of magnification is the correct one? Well, obviously, they're all correct. They're just different points of view. You can, for example, look at a newspaper photograph under a magnifying glass. And where with the naked eye you will see a human face, with a magnifying glass you will just see a profusion of dots, rather meaninglessly scattered. But as you stand away from that collection of dots, which all seem to be separate and apart from each other, they suddenly arrange themselves into a pattern. And you see that these individual dots add up to some kind of sense. Now you'll see at once from this illustration that maybe you, when you take a myopic view of yourself, as most of us do, but you may add up to some kind of sense that is not apparent to you in your ordinary consciousness. When we examine our bloodstreams under a microscope, we see there's one hell of a fight going on. All sorts of microorganisms are chewing each other up. And if we got it overly fascinated with our view of our own bloodstreams in the microscope, we should start taking sides, which would be fatal because the health of our organism depends on the continuance of this battle. What is, in other words, conflict at one level of magnification is harmony at a higher level. Now, could it possibly be, therefore, that we, with all our problems, 
conflicts, neuroses, sicknesses, political outrages, wars, tortures, and everything that goes on in human life are a state of conflict, which can be seen in a larger perspective as a situation of harmony. And you could say, aha, at last, I see, I got the point. I've seen how all this makes sense. <laughs> okay, we figured that one out in our dreams tonight. Aha, it's the aha moment, everyone. And Happy New Year again. And uh, we'll see you this afternoon. All our love. See you in your dreams, too. I'm sure it'll be a, a interesting journey until we meet again. Namaste, Satnam. Satnam Ji. Ah, holy takwi dasan. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil, live long and prosper. Namaste, everyone. Aloha. <laughs>